Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Also, find us on Facebook, too. Just search for Political Beats. We invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Click on Podcasts, find all the fine NR podcasts. And ours is there, too, the fine ones and ours. Listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews, help others find the program at nationalreview.com. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by as always, quarantined for no particular reason. Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Oh, I don't know, Scott. I, I, I try not to get too high. I try not to get too low. End of the day, it's just a job you do. <laughs> and listen, listen, I got to tell you, you yes. know, my biggest problem with this, this gig is that, uh, well, you know, it's always the same. It's just a shame. And I guess that's all. That's all. But there's much more on this part two episode. And we welcome in a new guest for, uh, not a new, a returning guest, but a new guest for the uh, Genesis portion of the podcast. Brad Berzer makes his return, the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies and Professor of History at Hillsdale College. He's been teaching here since 1999 co-founder of the Imaginative Conservative and Spirit of Cecilia websites, listening to rock since the 70s, DJing rock in the 80s, and reviewing rock since the beginning of this decade. Also the author of a biography on Neil Peart from Rush. He was on our Rush episode, if you want to go back and hear that, at Bradley Berzer on Twitter. Brad Berzer returns. Brad, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys very much. I feel like I should start quoting Illegal Alien or something after Jeff's. <laughs> well, maybe choose a different song. Well, there are some lyrics that we might not want to quote, like the one about a sister. Let's leave that out. It's, uh, it's been stuck in my head all week. So, uh, This is, as you uh, gather from clicking on the episode, part two of our look at Genesis. Part one took us through uh, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, the Peter Gabriel here, so we open... Uh, in just a moment with the, uh, the the Phil Collins-led years and a bit of a story before we get to the first album of how that came to be. But first, we uh, allow our friend Brad Berzer. Uh, first, Brad, tell us a bit about yourself and, and how you came to, uh, to to write a book about Neil Peart and, 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 and your rock music fandom. Yeah, so I, I'm 53, and I first heard Prague about 1972 or 1973. I've got two older brothers. So I was introduced to Prague rock and rock overall, but Jethro Tull and Kansas and and uh, certainly Genesis uh, introduced when I was pretty young to them and uh, have been, been listening ever since. Uh, some of these albums have been with me for really as long as I can remember. I mean, I, I certainly remember when Duke came out. I definitely remember when Abacab came out. I was in seventh grade at the time, right about the same time that Moving Pictures came out. So Rush and Genesis have been with me really all of my life that I remember uh, since being a kid. Uh, the Rush biography came about because I became good friends with one of Neil Peart's good friends, a guy by the name of Kevin J. Anderson, who's a fantastic science fiction writer. But uh, I became friends with him, and I proposed to him that I write this biography of Peart, and he said, yeah, let's do it. So that, that's how that happened. Both Jeff and I had an opportunity to uh, sort of make some 
general statements about our, our, our love for Genesis in, in part one. And so we, we allow you here to, to jump in, too. You didn't get a chance to talk about the Peter Gabriel years, so if you have a few quick thoughts on those albums, feel free to, to tell, us, tell us them now and, and about your Genesis fandom. Well, I, I would actually argue that Selling England by the Pound may be the greatest rock album ever made. Um, and I know that's a huge, huge claim. But what? Uh, Did I, you I listen absolutely... to our earlier episode? That's exactly what I said. <laughs> oh, I, no, I didn't, Jeff. I'm sorry. I apologize. That is that. literally what I said. I said it's the yep. second greatest rock album ever. I only put Quadrophenia above Oh, it. yeah? I, yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I rated see that, that highly. Yeah, I yeah. would too. Um, I just, I think it's not only in its themes, but in its flow, everything about it is really, I think, just a, a, a perfect album. So it would be definitely in my top three and maybe my number one in terms of, I, I, for me, Moving Pictures would be its great rival. And uh, probably Spirit of Eden by Talk Talk would be really, it, those would be my top three. So, uh, I would go back and forth depending on the day, but I'm glad we agree, Jeff. That's both good and worrisome, right? That we agree so much on this. Well, you were telling me in our pre-show run-up that you were like, I agree with a lot of Jeff's opinions on some of these albums, and I guess now we know why. Because yeah, I, I do come from that. I think I think the next two greatest Genesis albums come from this era, but Selling Illin is always going to be, for me at least, the one. There are some right. that come very close. Right, right. Lamb, uh, Lamb lies down. I think maybe more intelligent. But I don't think it works quite as well. Uh, the theme's just too modern. I like when Genesis goes back and gives us kind of T.S. Eliot themes and medieval themes. <laughs> and uh, that romantic element is great. So we left last time with uh, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway and Genesis about to, uh, to lose a lead singer. And Jeff said, well, there we go. It's the end of our journey here. Uh, going to be a short episode two, a short part two. But no, the band continues they find a new lead singer who happens to already be in the band. And, and Jeff, maybe you want to talk a little about this transition oh, where yeah. Peter Gabriel leaves and Genesis is searching for someone to sing the songs, or maybe not, because Phil, Phil thought, eh, we could just be an instrumental band. It's okay, lyrics get in the way. Uh, that's not the way they went, though. If Genesis had ended in 1975 with the departure of Peter Gabriel, and then the band had just sort of ceased to make music. They'd all gone their separate ways. They would still be a band that I really loved, and I had a huge amount of respect for, and, you know, we'd have still done an episode of it, because the work from Gabriel's era just is that good, especially selling England and The Lamb and Foxtrot. Um, but the fact of what came after that happened explains why Genesis is my favorite band of all time. And this is this is the point where it's it's not just these guys are making great music. It's an underdog story that you can root for. Um, they they went from a band that was declared dead. Everybody in the music press, people who didn't understand necessarily how the internal dynamics, the songwriting dynamics of the band worked, had simply assumed that, well, here's the, your charismatic frontman. He sings everything. Uh, he seems to be writing all of the lyrics. And we just assume he probably writes all of the songs, too. Uh, he, he's announced he's leaving. Well, I guess that's it for Genesis. Um, and, and what comes next, I just used this analogy yesterday night on, on Twitter, is the equivalent of like, you know, somebody who's already been put into his coffin, lower down into the ground, <laughs> punching a fist up through the wooden door and then climbing up through six feet of dirt and then announcing to the world, I live, I am alive, I am not dead, not dead at all. 
because what happens is a trick of the tail, which is uh, an absolutely perfect album. It is, to my mind, clearly the second greatest album that Genesis ever put out. And as such, I think it's one of the you know 20 greatest rock albums of all time. Uh, what happened here is that you know the, Gabriel left, but they knew. They knew, like, listen, you know, Pete, obviously a hugely important part of this band, huge contributor on the lyrics. He wrote some music for us, too. But we are not just Peter Gabriel. We are songwriters. You know, Banks and Rutherford and Hackett, they all had stuff to contribute. Uh, and, and and Phil, you know, of course, said, you know, as, as Scott pointed out, he's like, well, just be an instrumental band. So that's what they were <laughs> for the recording of Trick of the Tale. They recorded all of this music instrumentally. They knew what the lyrics were. They had they had texts that they were going to work with. They just didn't know who was going to sing them, and so they did this this funny thing where they auditioned like a lot of people in the British music scene to sort of be the new Genesis vocalist. And you know, some of the people on the short list are hilarious. It was kept very secret, like a state secret for decades. <laughs> but but on the um, on the uh, the Genesis Archives two box set. Somebody finally like printed up. I think it was like either Tony's or Mike's handwritten notes about who the finalists were. And some of them were strange. It's like you know the guy from Manfred Mann's Earth Band yeah. was one of them, uh, and even more hilariously, Alan Clark of the Hollies. Can you imagine <laughs> the lead singer of the Hollies joining Genesis? That could have happened. And I read but, Nick Nick Lowe too, possibly. Yes, I mean. Think of that. It's just, it's just the insanity. First of all, the idea that Nick Lowe is actually a secret Genesis fan is also pretty funny. <laughs> uh, you know, because because you know all, all those guys actually secretly like this prog stuff. They don't want to admit it, but they do. Um, but what happened is that they'd get these guys in, and they'd have them try it out one song. The one song that they all had them sing as sort of their audition tape was a song called Squonk. <laughs> they chose that is because it is a demanding song it's pitched very high uh you've really got to belt out the lines you've got to you've got to really project you've got to have some force of personality because you're also singing some very quirky lyrics about a you know a mythical american creature you know that you know if you go out to hunt it at night and capture it in a sack it will escape by dissolving itself into a pool of tears it will cry itself away and you know you got to have a certain you know sense of whimsy to be able to pull off a song like that and nobody was getting it right so i it, phil literally you know who who had, had sung on on done backing vocals on almost all of genesis's stuff up until that point and had sung lead on more fool me and on four absent friends he just said screw it i'll do it all right i'll take a pass at it and he sang that song and everyone else in the band was like hey phil that's great that sounds awesome 
that sounds really good. Why don't you try this other one, Madman Moon? See what you can do with that. Hey, that works too. Why don't you try Dance on a Volcano? Think you can pull that off? Hey. And then before they knew it, he'd recorded the lead vocals for every single song on the album without ever intending to be the lead singer of Genesis. And at that point, they just said, you know what? We're going to promote from within. And they were so smart to do it because the fans were so, so ready and willing to accept Phil as the lead singer. You know, everyone loved Pete, and when he left, it was a gut blow to them. But uh, – the idea that, okay, well, we're not going to add some new guy he have never heard of. Here, here's Phil. Everyone loves Phil. He's going to come up and he's going to sing. And Phil actually got one of his very good friends to play behind him on that tour for the album called a guy named Bill Bruford you might have heard of. <laughs> a guy who played with Yes and King Crimson. Um, but the album, A Trick of the Tale, is a miracle for a band that had been left for dead to come out with this right after their lead singer leaves is one of the great kind of FUs to musical expectations. My drink of music is playing Voices can faintly be heard Please leave this patient understand oh. To drift far away now Nothing is quite what it seems Sometimes entangled in your own dreams In your dreams that I have never gotten tired of listening to. I don't think there's a second on it that I would subtract. I think it's beautiful and perfect in every way. And I would like to let one of you folks go into some of the specifics before I just start rattling off chapter and verse. Oh, that was great, Jeff. <laughs> I have to agree with you. It is my second favorite album as well from Genesis. I think it is a perfect album, and I would agree that there's not a note out of place. I, I love just not only the story behind it, but the whole flow of the album, I think from the opening note until the closing note, and the fact that, that they're so similar between the first song and the last song ties it together so beautifully. Not any kind of pretentious way, but in a very organic way. Uh, so it still has that kind of prog feel of the Peter Gabriel era, but you can tell that it's gone beyond that too. It's doing something different. Uh, not just mimicking it, but, but expanding it. And I, I think that's one way to think of Phil Collins too. Uh, he He isn't in some ways, he's a fulfillment of the Peter Gabriel era as much as he is someone who overturns it because he was always there. He was always supportive. He was always this key figure in the background. Gabriel relied on him for so many things. And it, it's almost as though the story of 1976 is the story, or 75, is the story of the emergence of Phil Collins into Phil Collins. Uh, he's not quite there yet, but we see this charismatic figure one who, strangely enough, can compete 
with Peter Gabriel, but Peter Gabriel was so cerebral in his eccentricity. And now we get Phil and even the fact that uh, he wears his overalls during concert, uh, <laughs> looking like a much more working class guy than anything Gabriel could have ever done. Yeah. No uh, more costumes, no, no more, you know, Gog and Magog, you know, no, exactly. Like which, which was great for what it was. But uh, I think Phil took that in a different direction. And you even see that in Seconds Out, his renditions of the songs are different. I mean, they're definitely different, and yet they're similar enough we know it's the same band. Uh, and I've always thought, and I don't know what you guys think of this, this is the, the religious side of me, but I, I always love that the album starts off with Holy Mother of God. Uh, I and just, it ends. It ends again with "There's an angel standing." And in there's, the sun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, isn't that incredible? Right. This. I mean, I love that that idea, and it, it's almost as a prayer. And that you know, you've got to go faster to get to the top. Uh, all right, we're going to do this. kind of grave digging that you brought up <laughs> but that's perfect for halloween of course yeah uh, yeah we are recording on the 29th that's right it's perfect for the season uh, but i but i agree with you i think that's a great image that that, that opening uh, again this is an album that you can all you can argue belongs to every single member of the band in mm. different ways dance on a volcano is such a perfect example of that it is a complete collaboration between all four members you know it opens with with a hackett you know doing the jiggle. Right. And then there's that, that indelible riff. Bleep, bleep, blop, blop, diddle a Yeah, absolutely. Which, you like, where do you come up with a, with a hook like that? It's, like, very prog in, like, its most pure essence, and yet it's absolutely unforgettable. Right. Bop, 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 da da bom. And the, the time signature keeps shifting, and you're like, where, where am I in the rhythm, in the beat? And all of a sudden, it just starts moving forward, and it does end up feeling like there is a volcano under your feet yeah. is erupting yes you know oh it's such a wonderful way to begin this, the second half of their career scott do you do you have any thoughts on just just tell me that just say that everything we said was correct <laughs> that's not how the show works ah. usually uh it's a great I, I i completely understand why why you and brad really hold it in, in such high esteem especially when you consider you know thematically and i think uh, largely musically too this is so much uh, a, a, a sequel to selling England uh, more so than than the lamb. The lamb, yeah. Um, you know, it, it flows. I mean, not that the, the lamb was something different, right? It, it, it's not out of place in the band's 
uh, sort of career arc. But this is such a, a continuation, I think, more so uh, of Selling England. And so I, I totally understand uh, the love for, for both of these albums. Dan- Dance at a Volcano is is such a, is a band song, as, as Jeff was saying. Uh, everyone working together uh, on a song like that, a very cinematic sort of sort of mood to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Squonk, which is the, the song that, that everyone had to sing to try to be the vocalist in the band, as Jeff said, it, it is demanding. And I, I, I think uh, we forget a bit how dynamic Collins is as a vocalist from the start, he would get better. He would he would learn his instrument more, his his voice more. Uh, but even here from the start, he's doing some pretty great things. His vocals are are really fantastic. I, I love sort of that the, the lumbering beat uh, to, to the song, and I think I think even here in Squonk, there's more than a bit of a hint of stuff that's going to come. I mean, I, I can hear a little bit of sort of the angular art rock of oh, Abacab, yeah. absolutely on Squonk. Uh, that's a fantastic song. I, I love Ripples, and uh, and Jeff's going to tell you in a second that uh, that maybe Phil's voice isn't quite right yet on the album version of Ripples, and there are some yeah. live versions that are very, very good. But I don't have an issue at all with the way Phil sings this song on the album. It's a it's a beautiful 12-string, you know, Rutherford piece. There's, there's a wonderful piano part in the middle from from Banks. These lyrics about, about growing it's old. It's Hackett's guitar solo. That, okay. Yes, yes, the so Hackett this, guitar. The, here's the thing. Like, so that, that, that song is essentially all Mike Rutherford, right? He, he wrote the, the verses and the chorus and the lyrics. Uh, and then, of course, Tony inserts that... Um, you know that big long piano interlude which is beautiful mm-hmm. but it's what steve hackett uh, i talked in our first episode about why steve hackett is one of my two favorite guitarists of the entire rock era and in in this album is a perfect demonstration of why on every single song he's never trying to like come to the forefront he's not again he's not eddie van halen he's not playing some giant <laughs> you know screaming solo that demands your attention on that 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 Banks keyboard interlude, you just hear him floating above, you know, mm-hmm. da, da, these long sustained tone pedal plays uh, that, you know, as it finally builds to the climax, it is just this enormous sighing release. This is a song about aging. This is a song about, you know, how young beauty, you know, you know, it, it's an old woman looking in the mirror and seeing what they used to be and thinking about what they used to be when they were young and, you know, like lamenting the passage of time, um, that could be a sort of pedestrian theme, I guess. Uh, but the way that they 
bring it off musically with that climax is just glorious and it's even better when uh and you know you said that i was going to mention this i might as well just get it out of the way now (laughs) Uh, the only the only knock you can make on a trick of the tail is that this is phil's first time behind the wheel as a vocalist right so he doesn't have the same sort of power in his voice he hasn't figured out exactly how to use his instrument the way that he was going to on subsequent albums uh, so you want to hear this song uh, on the archives, too, on the box set where they have a live performance of it from 1980. Uh, that is, I would argue, the single greatest live single song performance of Genesis's entire career. Uh, the way Phil belts that chorus out, instead of sort of singing it in a sweet, kind falsetto, which is what he does here on the album. Instead, he is just at the top of his chest range, getting all those high notes out, and the band is just striding along behind him it is uh, a transporting moment and i guess the funny thing is that ripples is the best written song on a trick of the tail but it's my least favorite actual studio track on the album simply because i know how much it would improve later on Further on in in the, in, the, in the band's career, there's going to be some, you know, Phil is is sort of uh, wimping out and writing these ballads, and even I mean Ripples, as you met, it's a Rutherford track, and there's a couple of times in these next few albums when Rutherford's going to come through with these very beautiful, heartfelt songs, and it's not just perhaps Phil leading them in, in a direction later on. This is a this is a band in in literally every sense of the word. Uh, yeah. The other one I mentioned very quickly, and, and then and then uh, hand off to Jeff is you know Los Endos, which is uh, a, a real favorite of of the band too. Uh, way to close a trick of the tale, seven minute long, essentially instrumental. There's some supper is ready lyrics that make their way on the very end on the trail out. Uh, but man, there's a lot of fill coming through on Los Endos, uh, and he loves those funky rhythms. He loves the percussion, the cymbals, the drum patterns. There's also this big bubbly bass line. You hear some some parts of, of Dance of the Volcano and Squonk come back on Los Endos as the trick of the tail closes. It's a wonderful way to, to, to wrap up the album.
it's actually based on a b-side uh, an outtake from the album that they never released until i think the b-side of your own special way from the next record it's called it's yourself um which is actually a, a, another beautiful song if they put it on the album the album would have been, only been improved by it <laughs> um but yeah it's it's basically one of these giant medleys and it's something that the band would actually become very fond of and very adept at in their live performances meddling songs together finding the joints where pieces can all fit together in in a satisfying and intelligent way but i really always did love the ending of, of los endos where you know you know at the end it goes back into the squonk theme they're mm-hmm. going back to that that john bonham plot and then you hear in the background phil singing there's an angel standing in the sun and what of course that is is that's their uh, their farewell to Pete. Uh, you know they're saying to to Peter Gabriel, it's like, hey, you know what? We made it. We made it. We we're gonna be all right. We hope you're all right. No hard feelings. It's it's all gonna work out. And of course, Pete repaid the favor to them on Salisbury Hill. Uh, you know by you know writing the you know the chorus of Salisbury Hill, which is you know grab your things. I've come to take you home, which is again a reference to uh you know to both Losendos and to Supper's Ready. These guys are kind of always ongoing, you know, had an ongoing musical conversation with one another that, that gets carried through on a lot of their music because they're all playing on each other's stuff as well. Uh it, the, there are so many again there's there's nothing weak on on this on this album. I think one song that I do want to focus on uh, and then I'll and I'll let Brad wrap it up after I'm done is uh probably the least known and least uh, discussed song on it it's called madman moon this it's is a, a, a tony song. banks what were you gonna say it's a beautiful song <clears throat> I, I think it it's very close to being the best song on the <laughs> album and it, it doesn't have a high profile because it was never played live it was never played live for for understandable reasons it required it would have required like seven different keyboards you know <laughs> and piano i mean this is this is tony banks kind of running wild he, he wrote the whole thing himself but again it, it isn't just like you know a banks keyboard showcase you have First of all, Phil giving his best vocal performance of the album. I like some of these songs when he had he developed a tougher voice. Squonk sounds a lot better, I think, live when he just starts just getting hoarse and belting like in season, out of season. That's a tougher song live and it works better live. Same thing as I said with Ripples, uh, Dance on a Volcano as well. But on Madman Moon, the very gentle pure and beautiful voice that that phil was bringing to these sessions is exactly what that song needs and everyone else contributes as well so phil sings that line you know so i pretended to have wings for my arms and took off in the night and then you hear in the distance behind him steve hackett playing the single most beautiful guitar line he gets on this entire album just a quiet quick cameo which is everything about steve hackett that i love no need to shout People are going to hear your contribution. They're going to understand just how important it is. It is always there. Uh, this is you know, a, a very long, very dreamy and drifty piano ballad that uh, I think represents the peak of the band. <laughs> and, uh, it's the one that people talk least about on the record. Shepherds of lies forced me to land and take a disguise. I would welcome a horse's kick 
Brad, do you have any final thoughts for Oh, I, I think those are excellent thoughts. I'm a huge, huge Steve Hackett fan. I would agree with you that he's one of the top guitarists in rock history. Uh, I had a chance to interview him a few years ago. Oh. He was also such a gentleman. I uh, yeah. just... Uh, such a great guy, so nice. In fact, uh, I was a little embarrassed. He kept asking me questions <laughs> during the interview. Um, I mean, that's just how nice he was. But I, I have to throw one last thing in before we move on to wind and weathering. Uh, so when I was a kid, there was uh, one of the first cable networks was USA Network. And they used to have a show called Night Flight. And they, it was like MTV, but uh, a, a little bit more obscure. They played more proggy stuff. Uh, they did some things that MTV wasn't doing and doing longer things. But one of the concerts that they liked to show on Night Flight was Genesis from 1976. Yes, from, the in-concert film. Yes, yeah. and uh, with Bruford on drums and Collins doing his tambourine dance. And it's just... <laughs> Uh, that, in many ways, that's the embodiment of my childhood, watching that and to just absolutely falling in love with the band. And I don't know if you remember, but they played Carpet Crawlers, Cinema it, Show, Entangled. And I know what I like, where Phil's bonking himself yes, on the head. Yes, exactly, right. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they did them all basically as one song with uh, different parts of films that they were showing in the background uh, coming in and out of, of focus. And yeah, just to see Genesis play like that and to have a, almost a medley before there were actual medleys, but the way that they put their concerts together was an album in and of itself. I, I, I couldn't agree more on the in-concert film. Well worth seeking out. And in fact, DM me on Twitter. I have an enormous collection of live Genesis bootlegs I will be more than happy to share with all you people. I hope I'm not getting myself into huge trouble here. Uh, I, I hope I don't, I don't get 100 uh, DMs. But uh, I've basically been, been you know, parceling them out on Twitter over the last month or so anyway. So uh, anybody wants to find out how great Genesis could be live during this era, I'm your man. This <laughs> This takes us to the last album with Steve, and uh, this is, of course, a very important sort of breaking point for the band. This is the album Wind and Wuthering.
have to say that this one to me has always been a bit of a disappointment. Now, I can go listen to it and, you know, I'm such a fan of Genesis. I'm such a fan of this style of prog that it never truly offends me mm. because I just like the sound. I mean, I, I, I don't even mind you listening to Phil Collins singing about being a mouse lost in a house, <laughs> you know, being chased by a cat, which is the song All in a Mouse's Night, right? Um but this one feels like they've gone back to the well one too many times to hit the same formula. It's the same kind of selling inland by the pound thematic formula where you have lots of musical bits that will come back, be reprised here and there and things like that. Uh, and uh, the, the, the main songs, I think, do sort of represent a, a bit of Tony Banks's overweening ego. There's a long, long track on this called One for the Vine, which is his, his thing about like, you know, like, you know, wars and messiah complexes and on all the like that it's always kind of represented what I like least about Banks as a writer. It's the stodgy lyrics, the sort of on the nose and ploddingly preachy moralization. And, uh, you know, the, the musical changes, which always have like maybe seven chords too many in them. And there are some fine instrumental bits in it. And I, and I do think that Phil does as good a job as any man could reasonably be asked to do when singing a Tony Banks lyric. <laughs> but man, it's 10 minutes long and so much better music was excluded from this record. And some of which I think ended up, you know, sort of, you know, pushing Steve to leave the band. There was mm. a, a great song of his called Please Don't Touch, uh, which ended up being the title track of his uh, solo album that he released right after he left that would have been a fantastic instrumental thing uh but instead they put on like what gorilla instead and like you know 10 minutes of one for the vine and uh i just don't know i feel like this is diminishing returns there are some things on this record that i do still enjoy i love the instrumental work i love unquiet slumbers for the sleepers in that quiet earth which is taken from wuthering heights that's the last line of the of the, the famous bronte novel wuthering heights uh thus the title of the album and i also really think that the best single song on it is the one that hackett Wrote, mm -hmm. which is blood on the rooftops mm -hmm. i think phil phil contributed a bit to the lyrics but i mean from the uh you know the classical nylon string guitar introduction to those you know very kind of sweeping and dramatic chords throughout the, the body of the song that just screams hack it in every way and i think it's probably you know it's up it's up between that and entangled as the best song that he ever brought to the band well, sea shipwreck sailors you're still dry Outlook's fine, the waves might have some rain saved again. Agree with Jeff. Uh, this this is 
it's my, it's, it's my least favorite album from this era, excepting Calling All Stations and probably We Can't Dance as well. And that's not trying to, to damn it because there's, there's good there's good parts on here. But it, I, I, I think it's a little tougher to... Uh, I think it's a little tougher to get into. Uh, part of that is Banks is not a, a direct writer uh, the way Collins is, and Collins is not writing, you know, the way he would later. And this is a very Banks-influenced album, you know, from start to finish, as, as Jeff mentioned. And so that, that makes some of the tracks a little more obtuse to a uh, to a first-time listener. And, and Jeff mentioned some things that were left off. You know, my, my favorite thing from this era, or not this era, I mean, heck, it's, it's the same year as uh, Trick, uh, Trick of the Tale, but there's one called Inside and Out, yes. which was left That's off the awesome. album, and it's on archives too. That might be my favorite thing that could have been on Wind and the Weather. It sounds like uh, another Hackett piece too. It's twelve string acoustic, which certainly Hackett. It's, and the, the first part is Rutherford, the, that that nice like twelve string acoustic ballad. Mm-hmm. That's all Mike, and then the second part, the big instrumental freak out. Yeah. that's definitely Steve. Yeah, that's about the four minute mark when that there's a single kick drum that really launches that song into another level and then Banks is playing this Moog Inside and Out is probably my favorite thing from the album or that was left off the album but recorded for the album what's on I think there, they had regrets too because they actually ended up playing it live like during the second half of the Wind and Wuthering tour they, they must have realized that like <laughs> hey wait a second this is actually really good you probably shouldn't have left it off the it's, album it's a great song <laughs> mentioned blood on the rooftops which i think is probably the best song that made the album i think after Lou is really good that, that's a banks song that is more well actually a little more direct and straight and concise than a lot of the other stuff that he, he had written it's a really fine melody uh it's a good song I, I don't think it's as good as the stuff on uh trick of the tail and i i agree with jeff one for the vine it, it doesn't do a lot for me um, there's there's one song I just mentioned quickly, Your Own Special Way, which is a Rutherford track that actually got a little bit of radio play. It's mm-hmm. a slower kind of ballad love song. Again, they do that much better uh, in albums to come. So overall, again, good stuff. 
but I, I don't like this nearly as much as as uh, as even the next album. And then there were three, which I know a lot of Genesis fans don't necessarily love, love, love. But I like that even better than than this album, Brad. I think I, I think I'll say just one thing about your own special way is that I really love the the mat the backing musical track for that the, the, the sort of the gentle glide of you know Rutherford's twelfth string. I, I think it's a very beautifully recorded and written song. It's just that Phil doesn't know how to sing it yet. And, you know, they played it live on the Seconds Out tour, and he still doesn't know how to sing it during those versions. But then, you know, after again, after he'd learned how to harness his his instrument, they uh, went back and they did like a one-off version of it when they were touring Australia, I think, in 1986 during the Invisible Touch tour where they brought in strings. And then Phil sings that song, and it's just it, – it, it literally surgically removes the tears from your tear ducts. It is so <laughs> perfect. And it just goes to show you how these songs would grow a lot of times when taken out on the road because they understood better better what made them great than they did sometimes when they were initially recorded. Because you, you, you have your own special way of holding my hand, holding half of the water, don't ever let go. No, no, no. Yes, you. This is a, an album that I absolutely love, and I have as far back as I remember first hearing it. Uh, I It's probably because it came out in 1976. I've always thought of it as the sequel to Trick of the Tale, and I've thought of, them, I've thought of it as a double album, with side three basically being side one, uh, Wind and Weathering being the weakest side by far of the four sides. But uh, of the final side, with blood on the rooftops, unquiet slumbers, and that quiet earth and afterglow. Uh, I always thought that was a, a pretty perfect combination of music. And one of the reasons I like it so much, and it's in the title, uh, one of the things that Genesis does so well on this album, from my perspective, is they're able to mix a lushness that would fit more with Kate Bush, uh, I think, than it does Genesis in some ways. But they have this lushness that they mix with Apocalypse. You know what's strange is that I've been a fan of Kate Bush my entire life as well, and I never, until this very second, actually made the connection between Wind and Wuthering and Wuthering Heights. Oh, yeah, yeah. Song. Well, I'm sure that's why I made that connection, Jeff. But <laughs> that's, uh, I've always thought of this as much more of a Kate Bushish type of, uh, at least uh, 
parts of it type of album. But I really do like that lush mixed with Apocalypse because Afterglow, you know, that can be taken as a romantic thing. It can also be taken as the end of a nuclear war. And when you look at all the themes on side two, especially of Wind and Weathering, uh, all the fights between the Arabs and the Jews and everything that's going on, I think there's uh, <laughs> I think there's some, some real apocalypse happening there. Like the dust So that's what the dust that settles all my, around me is well, really about. <laughs> that's uh, that's how I've taken it, but I know some have taken it romantically. Yeah, I mean, and this brings us to uh, the 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 first real, I guess, official Genesis Live album. Genesis Live, the the, the 1973 single disc album, which I think is great. It is great. I think it, it's a fantastic, you know, sort of digest of early Genesis. It practically levitates itself off of your turntable in a fit of prog rock <laughs> snootiness. Um, but you know, it wasn't really an approved release by the band. It was just like, ah, you know, we're, we're recording, selling Angle by the Pound. We haven't written any songs yet. Put this out. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, and and so they always said like, yeah, we didn't really like, you know, we didn't really approve very strongly of that release. Ironic, of course, because everyone loves it. Yeah. Seconds Out was their big double album statement, their double live album. This is their Yes songs, right? This is their Welcome Back, My Friends, to the show that never ends. Because Genesis has more taste and restraint than those bands. They made it only a double album. And, and a lot of fans really love this. This is, of course, Phil's big coming out party as a live performer. It's all taken from the 77 tour, which means that uh, instead of uh, Bill Bruford, who played in 76, he's on one song here. They took Cinema Show from the 76 That's shows. Right. Um, uh, but the rest of it is Chester Thompson, uh, a guy who's a fantastic drummer, made his bones playing with Frank Zappa, uh, <laughs> uh, of all of all guys. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Zappa or with like the Roxy and Elsewhere album, but that's Chester Thompson. And he is just, you know, I think that's where Phil actually first heard him and said, like, yeah, we should get this guy. This guy would be great. And he ended up becoming not only the touring drummer for Genesis forever, uh, but also Phil Collins' drummer <laughs> when he went solo. And, you know, we would do solo tours. He said, now, Chester, I want you to play with me as well. And I think he does a fine job here. I think something is wrong with the mix on this album. Uh, I feel it's always felt a little bit neutered to me. Hmm. Uh, something about the way Steve's guitars are mixed and, and the joke that Tony Banks one met, once made this joke and then people held it against him because they didn't realize he was kidding. <laughs> he says, like, yeah, you know, Steve left during the mixing of Seconds Out, and so that's why we mixed his guitar out of the album, <laughs> which is not true. I have 
very, very, very many of the multi-tracks for this, this, this concert tour. That's just how he sounded every night. But I don't care for that sound. I don't think it has the balls that, that they had either earlier or later in terms of uh, guitar sound. And so that's always bothered me a little bit. I think also that Supper's Ready is, of course, you know, the big Genesis epic. We spent 25 minutes talking about it on our last episode, so I don't need to go through all those beats with you again. I think Phil only does sort of a workmanlike job with it here. He would do a much better job later. Again, when his voice thickened and got, you know, tougher, he could sing the crap out of this, especially the ending. The ending part, the apocalypse in nine eight, and you know, as sure as eggs is part. They he do such such a fine job with it later on in their career. But right now in seventy seven, I don't know. It feels weak. Again, for me, the the primary highlights are just the instrumentals, the band jamming. When they go into that 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 mid uh, song jam on robbery, assault, and battery, where Phil gets back behind the drums and he just starts <laughs> flailing away, and then Tony is playing these great synth lines and Steve is wailing on the guitar. That's a classic Genesis moment. As for the rest of this, eh, I, I think the funny thing is that I, I rate them so highly as a live act, and yet I feel like their official live albums, uh, until they got to the archives, never really captured the greatness of the group. I don't know what you guys think. I, in general, I'd agree, Jeff. I, Seconds Live has always been such an important album to me that it's hard for me to be objective about it. But I do think disc two of, of it is much stronger. I think when they're using the longer songs and they're allowed to kind of flex their muscles on those, I think that they do a much better job. But I would, I think disc one has some weak moments. Uh, in terms of what they could do live and i have i don't i probably don't have the quite the set you do but i have quite a few of the the bootlegs as well and you're right on some of those bootlegs you can really hear them stretch their muscles in ways that they didn't do on seconds out something just to emphasize that uh, jeff made clear is you know when, when phil became the singer he was not in the live setting drumming drumming and singing at least for a vast majority of the show he'd do some solos and do some 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 drum uh, for the big instrumental stretches he'd right. get back behind right. the kit but and he, like yeah he really was you know he was the front man and so that does change the the dynamics of of of, of the show chester thompson playing drums on again most of, of seconds out um, I, I think this is a good representative live performance. Both of you guys have heard more live Genesis than certainly I have. Um, I like the uh, the stretched out version of uh, I Know What I Like out to almost nine minutes uh, long. 
the the stuff they do from the Gabriel era largely is pulled off well. I think that the carpet crawlers version is really excellent. Um, I'm not sure I like the title track from Lamb quite as much, uh, at least in this setting. It's one of the only Gabriel era songs that I feel Phil didn't yes. have like like a full handle on the way that Peter did. And yeah. you didn't you didn't feel those lyrics the way the guy who wrote them and was like devised an entire one hour and thirty minute long concept album around had a command of. Yep. Uh, he just sort of sings it almost like it, it feels a little bit karaoke like unfortunately. Yeah. On the other hand, I think he does a way better job with Firth or Fifth than Peter ever did. So yeah. who knows? It just doesn't have that right edge to it on right. the land that Peter brought to it. Uh, and then the, the, the medley, the, the dance uh, volcano in, in Los Santos med, uh, melody medley is is really top-notch on Seconds Out, uh, yeah. too. Yeah, that one works. Uh, what doesn't Cinema work show is, works, too. What did uh, you say? Oh, I love Cinema Show on Seconds Out. Well, I, I think Cinema Show is nearly as good as the uh, studio version, and that yes. says something because the studio version of Cinema Show, as we discussed in our previous episode, is one of my favorite Genesis yeah. songs of all time. Yeah, me too. It's the instrumental section. It, what, what, what that benefits from is having Bill Bruford. Um, right, and, right. Bill yes. with his jazz chops yep. can play that. And, and there's a reason they never really they, – they would the instrumental part would come back in various medleys throughout the rest of their career. But Bill plays that with such sympathy. Uh, you know, I think Phil actually, the way Bill actually joined the tour is pretty funny. Like Phil was just sitting around talking with with Bruford because they're buddies, right? They're big, they're big jazz fanatics. You know, they're they're, they're hanging out at Phil's place, and, and and he's just sort of lamenting to to Bruford. He's like, you know, we have to go on tour on this, and I who the heck is going to be the drummer for this? I have no idea what to do because I have to get up there and sing, and I can't do both simultaneously. <laughs> and Bill just volunteered. He's like, hey, let me do it, you know. Because, you know, King Crimson had just broken up recently. I guess Phil, Bill Bruford didn't have anything else going on. And Phil was stunned. He's like, I thought you were done with all that. Like, I, I thought you were just over the whole prog rock thing. I, I'm, I, I can't believe that you'd want to do it. But Bruford was game. And he was just yeah. like, hey, like, this will be fun. This will be a new challenge. And he did a fantastic job on the tour and on that song. Um, and you know, I think that's one of the real highlights of Seconds Out. however is what happens immediately after this and of course this is the last i think 
you know, big ruction. Well, I mean, I guess until Phil leaves in 1993. Uh, the last big ruction within Genesis. And this is the departure of Steve Hackett. Hackett had become increasingly frustrated uh, with the working methods of the band, I think for the same reason that Peter Gabriel had gotten kind of fed up with it, too. You know, this is sort of a pseudo-democracy. You know, everybody gets input. Everybody's a songwriter. Everybody has to agree on what gets included. But, of course, you know, you know, some animals are more equal than others. And so, like, Tony Banks can throw his weight around. You know, and Rutherford is one of the old boys, and he gets a big say. And Hackett was kind of getting, getting a little tired of some of his songwriting ideas being pushed away to the side uh, and including Please Don't Touch which I mentioned earlier and so you know after touring Wind and Wuthering all around the world it was their biggest tour they started in January 1st of 1977 they weren't done I believe until like August of that year wow. eight months of it and like playing literally you know all around the world in, in America in England in Europe in Brazil in South America they went everywhere and then Steve just said, listen, I'm done. And I think Phil like, tells a story. I was like, you know, how did he find out that Steve was leaving the band? He actually was driving to the studio, saw Steve walking along the side of the road, pulled over his car and offered to, you know, hey, give him a ride. And Steve was like, yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, I'll walk. Don't worry about it. He gets to the studio and then Tony and Mike tell me that Steve just phoned us and said he's quitting. <laughs> And I think Steve says, this is the reason I never got in that car is I knew that if I did and I told Phil, he's the only one who could have talked me out of it. <laughs> um, and this is – there's no question that, that Hackett, first of all, is – again, I, I love him as a guitarist. I love him as an artist. And his solo career, by the way, is something that if you're a prog guy, like I'm a prog guy, it's really worth investigating. His right. first solo album actually came out before Trick of the Tail when he was still with the band. It's called Voyage of the Acolyte. Every member of Genesis plays on it tellingly except for Tony Banks. Yes. Every other member's on it. Phil plays drums and sings. That Mike Rutherford's there. Yeah. And so I think Steve was just like, you know, there, there's obviously the Steve and Tony dynamic there. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then the stuff that he did after that is great too. Please Don't Touch, Spectral Mornings. There are so many wonderful Steve Hackett solo albums. It's not a portion area that we can cover during this show, but if you're if you're a prog fan, if you're a Genesis fan during the Hackett era, you should go investigate his stuff. Yeah. Well, the upshot is that his departure just blew a huge hole in the band's sound. And there's no greater example of that than what happens on And Then There Were Three, which is, I think, easily the most confused recording of Genesis's career. Uh, everything about this just sounds off. Not everything, almost everything. I think there are, this is, you know, they've all kind of run off into their separate corners. They're all writing separately. There's Mike in one room doing songs. There's Tony in another room doing songs. There's Phil wondering if the if the house painter who's really friendly is maybe <laughs> being a little bit too friendly with his wife. Uh, and uh, what you end up with is an album that this sounds completely disjointed. It doesn't sound like it's a group collaboration anymore because Steve was the guy who would glue everything together. And, uh, you know, this is this is the one that everyone just considers universally to be the big dip in their career. I actually like it a lot. I tell you, I um, go for it. No, this is what I love. Right. I mean, it's 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 not it's not the best album of their career. And it's not I don't think it's as good as, you know, Duke and Abacab, which are coming up. But I, I think it's pretty darn good. There are moments I don't I don't like. I don't like uh, Snowbound. I don't think scenes from a a, a, a night's uh, dream is all that great. But there are really good parts. Down and out 
I freaking love Down and Out. It's just a fantastic it's song. It's a great song. I don't talk around corners. It's about oh. a record executive yes. coming in and telling this band that they're washed up. You, you and I both know the score. You can't go on like this forever. Neither one of us is getting any younger. I, I love that lyrically. And that is just a killer, killer uh, musical track. I mean, Phil Collins' drums are insane. Did they play this live very much? I... They, they didn't play it very much, but they did play it live a few times. I have a few recordings of it. But yeah, it dropped out of their set lists early on. Oh. I, think it was, I think it was just too too hard to play live, too much chaos. I would think. <laughs> I, would, I, I would not doubt that at all, that that's the case. But it's just fantastic. That, again, Colin's playing these really fast triplets on the bass drum. There's a great pulsing kind of bass, bass synth moving through. There's propulsion and forward motion. I love Down and Out. It's one of my favorite songs from this era of Genesis. It's good to be here, how ya been? Check my bag, boy, where's my room? I sit on the phone, that's my game. Keep up the pressure on the way. I don't wanna be about the bush. But none of us are getting any younger. Ballad of Big, I love that groove they work into on on, on Ballad of Big. It's a great uh, track, uh, and again, uh, the, the end of that with Banks and Rutherford going back and forth on electric piano and that, and that guitar synth that Rutherford plays, it's great. Many- Someone pointed out to me that the lyrics of that almost certainly have to be Phil's because uh, it, it is a Collins Rutherford collaboration, mm-hmm. and of course we all—I don't know—maybe some people don't realize this, but Phil is one of the biggest like old West aficionados yes. on the yeah. planet. He—he yeah. he literally the, the Alamos He's uh, a- Museum exists yep. because Phil Collins donated his <laughs> entire collection to it. He's collected every single piece of memorabilia that that still exists from the, the Alamo. I don't know where he developed this obsession, but I think it's hilarious that like some kid in like London right. just decided like I really love cowboys and Indians. <laughs> Oh, that's where Ballad of Big comes from. Uh, many too many. And by the way, you know, this is this is to the album where, where Collins is writing a bit more too. Again, not not the, yeah. the, the the strength or the power he'd have in, in a few albums to come, but he, he's certainly seeping more into the process here with only three members. Many too many though is a, is a, is a Banks track. Man, I, I love that one too. That the Mellotron. Oh, I think it's the I last. Hate you hate oh, many too many. Oh, you're wrong. That that you know. I, I thought I was lucky. I thought I uh, I got it made. How could I be so blind? That's a wonderful melodic point in many too many. <laughs>
There's a guitar from Rutherford here. There's, he plays guitar on, uh, on Burning Rope. There's a solo in Burning Rope, which I think is pretty good, more than passable. On Many Too Many, though, it does sound like he's doing a Hackett impression, right? He's trying to sort of cop right. a, a guitar this, line the way that, that Hackett would. But I, I love Many Too Many, too. The solo on Burning Rope, which I, which is another one of the... Tony has so many of these solo songs, and they're very different styles of songs, right? I hate Many Too Many, as I said. <laughs> I, I really like Burning Rope, though, okay? Very kind of long, discursive prog song. It's, again, about, like, you know, somebody chasing their ambitions, chasing their dreams, and then realizing once they've gotten to the top, well, what have I really accomplished? You climb up a burning rope to escape the mob below, you know, and but you put the flaming out so that others can follow. And, uh, it, again... Typical, like difficult to sing Tony lyrics, but I do love that guitar solo, which I love because it doesn't try to be hack it. It's just, right. it's, it, yep. it's what were you saying, Scott? I, I'm just agreeing with you. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it doesn't try to be hack it. It's just a melodic solo. Okay, it follows the melody line very closely, up and down the scale, and it works because it basically is, you know, it's the chords that Tony wrote for. Another Tony song that I want to single out, and then I'll get, get, let Brad get his get his words in because I'm sorry for crowding you out. Is a uh, his greatest achievement on this album actually is a song called Undertow, which again no one talks about. It's the second song on the record, very anonymous, never played live. Don't know why. Uh, it is actually one of the most moving things that Tony Banks would ever write during his entire career. It, it, it's you know it starts off with a very almost wintry feeling, you know. Where you know Phil is talking about the curtains are drawn, the fire warms the room, the wind from the northeast is going to chill the air. It's going to be snowing out there, but then it just develops into these sort of like unfolding serial choruses that you think oh, this is going to be the chorus, which is like you know where he says you know better think a while or I may never think again if this were the last day of your life, my friend, and then it goes into. The best thing, as I said, his best chorus on the album and one of the, the greatest things that he ever wrote, which is that stand up to the blow that fate has struck upon you. Make the most of all you still have coming to you. Uh, whenever Banks tried to get epic or like, you know, give a big message in his songs, he usually fell flat on his face. Undertow is one of the ones that really, really succeeds. And I think it's notable for that. And it's one of those songs that almost never gets discussed. So I just wanted to give it a little extra credit. 
this album I, I it was one of the very first albums i ever bought i bought it at peaches in kansas city on a vacation with my folks uh, i i was blown away from the moment i started listening to it because and i was really at the, this was right when i started reading ray bradbury at, at the same time that i i got this album and to me, it reminded me of a collection of Ray Bradbury short stories. Uh, it didn't have the drama of Trick of the Tale or Wind and Wuthering, but it was a, a series of vignettes. And I thought that Collins really demonstrated his charisma on this because each song has its own personality. And I, Go West, young man! I, I love that song. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I mean, Deep in the Motherload, I think it's just an incredible song. And I love Burning Rope. I, I think that the the solo efforts on here that they put together as a band uh, were just great, and I, I I can see I can definitely see your perspective, Jeff, that it seems disconnected and disjointed. But to me, that's part of the charm of the album. Uh, I don't think it's nearly as good as Duke will be. Uh, it's not as good as Abacab, but I think uh, as an album, it's very strong because it is that collection of short stories. Go west. suffers from being an album of mostly at least well-written songs that are just very poorly recorded i think this is the worst engineered album of genesis's I, career the, i would disagree with that i think that's probably true the reverb is just dialed up to 11 on it and both on phil's voice and particularly on tony's keyboards and i feel like this is obviously tony getting what he wants uh they're way too aggressive they're way too high up in the mix and the thing is is that the way that you know this is the case is that if you go listen to the way they played this music live and most of it didn't survive too long in their set lists after the duke tour a lot of it had basically fallen away but uh you'll go listen to a song that you would have just thought was lame like the lady lies the sword and sorcery song where the hero rescues the maiden from the dragon but she's really a demon blah 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 but you know what you'll listen to phil play that song live sing it live band just cooks just cooks and like you know even the part like on the album where sing feels like come to my garden taste the fruits and the spices of love you're singing in kind of a weedy falsetto it just seems kind of weak and wimpy 
But then you go hear him sing it live, and again, he's just pushing out from his chest. Come, come to my garden. Taste the fruits and the spices of love. It works so much better as a live performance, which again tells me that this was good music that was sabotaged by bad production. Come with me, I need you. here that wasn't though and i guess that's the song that really should be focused on before we move on because it is the future of genesis it is the one that points the way forward to everything that was going to come and that of course is the final track on the album which has a lot of reverb (laughs) yeah well but the thing is this is the one place where i actually don't think it was better live than it was in the studio right this is one point where the reverb is exactly what you want yep and of course it opens with the and then just echo waka 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 Mike Rutherford obviously stepping on his tone pedals there the name of the song is Follow You Follow Me people who are even casually familiar with Genesis. This is the first time they ever heard them. This is their first American hit single. This is the first time they played in the charts. This is the first song of theirs that the average schmo, who's our age maybe, or maybe a little older, would be like, oh yeah, I remember that song. Who wasn't like a prog fan, just like a radio guy fan. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that. And of course they'll say, I thought that was a Phil Collins song because they don't realize it's a Genesis song. I love Follow You, Follow Me. People like to maybe sometimes dismiss it because it's, it's just a simple love song and a pop song. I don't mind that one bit. I'm, I have more than enough room in my life for simple love songs. What I, what I appreciate most about it is that it's their first group written song, their first truly three-way collaborative tune. They just Mike started the riff, Tony made some chords, Phil came up with the samba beat and the lyrics, and then you have an instant pop classic and it almost feels like after an album to me that feels so troubled uh, it feels like sort of a grateful resolution like okay yes this this was us getting over uh, a lot of you know internal issues with the band but maybe we figured out a way to move forward and so listen 
you know, I'll follow you if you'll follow me. what i love about it's, it it's also one of those songs that still comes up on the radio all the time and uh, i never turn it off there are other songs i immediately switch to a different station that song i've never gotten tired of even though it's been played so many times on american radio <laughs> unlike misunderstanding well i guess that brings us to uh duke hey, you know what listen you, do, that do, was an intentional you, segue scott do you, do you want to do the introduction to this one well, I, uh, I, I I can certainly give it a shot. But Genesis enters the 1980s, and I guess I'll, I'll make a case. I'll make my case here as we enter uh, Duke territory. Um, you know, I, I think we mentioned this last episode. Um, you know, via via Twitter, uh, some time ago before the show even started. I was uh, I can remember I was driving I was driving home or driving back to here at Hillsdale from Chicago uh, visiting so I was alone though so I had the, the radio up really loud because I can't you know with the kids and the wife I can't, can't turn the radio up so listening to um, early 80s Genesis and a thought occurred to me and I was trying to disprove it in my mind and I couldn't quite do it I think this begins the the best run for a mainstream rock band in the 1980s now you get into definitional questions like what's mainstream and what's not, and do you, what about U2, and do you count R.E.M. that didn't have success till late in the decade, and like the replacements, and well, mainstream, I don't think we can. So, yes, this is somewhat nebulous, but this begins, I, I think, an amazing winning streak, uh, and in one in which none of these albums, Duke, Abacab, Genesis, Invisible Touch, are really the same there's a there's such a natural progression uh through each of these albums and it doesn't feel forced and it doesn't feel like a, a switch flipped and all of a sudden you have invisible touch you know a, a number a number one smash in 86 there, there's this transition uh and i think one that the band embraced uh if you watch some interviews with banks and rutherford and and collins uh, they're pretty deliberate about saying, you know, we didn't want to repeat ourselves. We didn't want to do another sidelong supper is ready. We, we wanted to stop, you know, as you got to this era, some of the, the reprises in, in songs later in the album. We wanted to change things up. We don't want to repeat ourselves. And I th think that really starts on on Duke. Uh, although having said that, there is this this like 30 minute long suite, but it's broken up. You know, there are what, they break it up, right? five yeah. or six songs that make up this Duke suite that 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 pop through the album and sort of have this through 
uh, storyline from uh, Behind the Lines and, and Duchess and uh, Guide Vocal and Turn It On Again, Duke's Travels, Duke's End, and I may be missing one in there. Uh, but th- that, that makes up the bulk of the album uh, thematically, and I think makes up the best songs of the album, too, by, by and large. And I think they thought that, too, which is why that's the stuff they played live, and yep. that's the way they moved to writing for the rest of their career. Yep, and, and, and this is an album, too, after Phil's marriage falls apart, his first marriage falls apart. Uh, that would happen a few more times in Phil's life, unfortunately. Including even right now, where apparently someone's <laughs> occupying his <That's> house. Right. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Weird, weird story. Never-ending. So, so he's starting to bring, you know, real songs to the table and there's apparently a disagreement about whether or not he he, he had played the band um in the air tonight he says he did and banks says he didn't otherwise banks said i would have loved to have worked at it but either way you know there are some things on here uh that, that clearly are collins uh tracks um there's a lot to love here this is one of my favorite uh, albums of this era period i think banks has said it's his favorite album i think in in, in the band's history um you know Brad mentioned misunderstanding. I know Jeff hates misunderstanding. I guess I'm the guy that has to to stand up for misunderstanding, which is, you know, clear it's a Collins track that he brought to the band. You know, the, the beat is is sort of based on, you know, uh, Sly and the Family Stone, uh, the Sail on Sailor from the Beach Boys, which I, I love. Yes. Um, I love the melody and I love the groove and I love Rutherford's uh, guitar work. And, you know, thematically... You know, the, the story of, of, of this relationship meaning more to, way more to you than it does to the other person. And I think at the very end of the song, realizing that, you know, I, I still can't believe it, he was just leaving, is the final line of the song. And so the, the realization that all this time it meant more to you than it did to the other person. I, I, I like I like that, that lyrical conceit as well. Jeff, why does misunderstanding suck? I don't understand. I love misunderstanding. You know, I don't know. Just being the whole left left out standing in the rain kind of vibe feels so mopey and dippy. And also, this sort of casual R and B groove feels wrong for Genesis. It's great for so many other artists and bands. Fine, I don't deny that. It doesn't feel right for Genesis, and it never did. Like they're like B sides, and they made them B sides later on. But like you know, Hearts on Fire, not really a top tier Genesis track. I'd rather be you. You don't really need to hear that song. Misunderstanding is a preview of those. They all come obviously from the Phil Phil catalog. Mm-hmm. You know, you said that there you didn't feel like there was any big switch that flipped. I think there is one big switch that flipped in, in Genesis's career, and this is Phil learning how to use his voice. Mm. 
this is the first album where you hear Phil Collins, capital P-H-I-L, the Phil of the 80s, the Phil that you couldn't avoid, the Phil that eventually ended up driving you crazy, Sue Sue Studio. That Phil is the first time you hear it, and you hear it from the opening seconds of Behind the Line. A song that Phil actually re-recorded for his first solo album. I like it so much. It's better here. I, I, I think. I think it's better, better here. I, it, it's much better here. He did a much more sort of like you know horn-based uh, up-tempo thing with the with the uh, face value version of it. Uh, but but this is of course the first part of the Big Duke Suite, uh, which. What is it about? <laughs> Who cares what it's about? These songs have individual <laughs> meanings, right? Uh, Behind the lines is just a great kind of. A, a, this is them actually kind of pulling off a sort of soul and R&B feel hmm. without having the plot of misunderstanding. And that's, I think, because you get the sprightliness of, of Tony Banks throwing in all, again, maybe more chord changes that are necessary, but they're the ones that I want to hear. Uh, but what it leads into is what I think is one of the five greatest songs of Genesis's entire career, and that's Duchess. And this is what I mean when I say Phil coming into his own vocally meant so much to this band. Uh, this is a song that if they had tried to do it on, say, a trick of the tail, well, first of all, they wouldn't have had the, they wouldn't have thought to write it because it's so simple in so many ways. There's a drum machine in the background, a drum machine, <laughs> right? Uh, that's another new thing for the band. Uh, shows that you know Phil is Phil has not hung up about you know I have to play the live drums here. No, if that beat works, it works. It keeps them into a meter, and the song really has only one hook to it but when your hook is as massive as the hook on duchess where is it and she dreamed that every time she stepped into the light that is so tidal so oceanically huge that it doesn't matter everything else in the song could be an afterthought and it's not but that song still stands up as one of the finest things they ever did, and Phil could never have sung it the way he sings it on this album back in 1976 or 1977. And I think the other thing I love about Duchess is that it's basically the story of the band Genesis themselves, <laughs> right? You know, it's a song about a pop star. It's just a song that is, is, you know, it never gets old because it's always true. Somebody who tries their, their best to make it, times were, times were tough, and, you know, you're going to fight your way through to the top. You know, and you dream of a time, you know, where you, you all you have to do is step into the light and then they cry for more. And then that time comes 
And then all of a sudden, and then there was the time when she performed when nobody cried for more. <laughs> and every single time she stepped into the light, they really let her know the score. But she still mm-hmm. dreamed of those times when she sang the songs. She, and, and Tony Banks, I think, somewhere around the Calling All Stations era, kind of admitted it's like, yeah, and, and I inadvertently ended up writing our own biography, <laughs> you know, lyrically with that song. And it, it, it still resonates today because, it, again, it's the story of pretty much almost every artist or every band, you know, outside of, say, the Beatles that has ever existed. Russia's losing it. Right? Yeah, same... it is. And in yeah. fact, when we talked about losing it, I feel like I might have even name-checked Duchess. You might have. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I absolutely love Duke. It is my third favorite of all Genesis albums, and that means it's very high in all rock albums for me. But I have, oh, for at least ever since I've had iTunes, I took off Misunderstanding. Oh, so I hear the whole album except for Misunderstanding. <laughs> Thank you, Brad. And um, I, I think there are some good things about Misunderstanding. My problem with it, because I was uh, DJing back in the 1980s and I was at a soft rock station, we played that song so many times that I just got tired of it. And I'm not sure it's the song's fault. It may just be one of but, but see, I've never gotten, we played Follow You, Follow Me almost as much. Uh, and I never got tired of that, but I did of misunderstanding. There's just something for me that's just too sappy about it. Um, and I don't think it fits. Uh, lyrically, it doesn't fit. I actually think Duke is a grand sweeping album. I think it's cinematic. Uh, I think it's basically a movie. And uh, the, the minor parts of it... it has a pop song it, in 13.8. That's the yeah, and it, it, Exactly. Yeah. And uh, misunderstanding doesn't fit within the the framework turn it on does uh the, all the other but it doesn't for some reason and when i listen to the album without it i think it's a stronger album <laughs> and I, i'm sorry scott that that's but again i think part of that's just i heard it too many times and out of context from the album i also want to point out uh, one of the interesting things for me just these great connections you know david bascom who was one of the engineers on this album would also go on to engineer tears for fears songs from the big chair uh, which is when you think about that album versus Duke, it, it's actually there aren't that many differences. There are a lot of similarities between songs from the Big Chair and and Duke, uh, and I, I think that makes sense. They're both these <laughs> sweeping prog pop epics uh, that really I think are, are beautiful albums. If you don't like Misunderstanding, and clearly you don't, uh, at least we could agree that Turn It On Again is a massively awesome 
song, right? Yes. As perfect, as a, as a, it's a fantastic it's song. Right, and perfect I think rock Phil, song. Phil said he had a great joke. He says, you know, one of the fun things about in our early audiences, you know, there weren't a lot of girls. It was a lot of guys. Yeah. Um, and you know, he says, like, we would play Turn It On again, and it was so funny watching these people try to dance to it because there's always that dropped beat. It's in 13, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so like everyone's getting crossed up on the beat. Everyone's like, "What? What?" And everybody's out of step and out of rhythm. And yet somehow they brought that sucker to the top twenty. I don't even know how they did it, but it works. It's it's about a guy who falls in love. Again, it's actually still relevant kind of a conceit. Mm-hmm. You could use this. You could, it could be just as real for like a social media world as it was for the TV of the nineteen eighties. This is about somebody who, who's basically a shut in who just lives vicariously <laughs> through the people he sees on on television, and like you know thinks like the people on the soap operas or on the, the evening news or like his friends and the people that's why he says I can show you I yeah. can show you some of the people in my life but the people in his life are like the people on like Dallas and Dynasty <laughs> and it's, 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 yeah it, it, again it, it's one of those those conceits that just it's um, miraculously it did not age that song too and there's no real chorus until the very end and so the, the you know the i i sort of works as, as the chorus until you get to the very end and that ending part you know the the turn it on turn it on turn it on again this song is used in so many places as you know pre-game music for basketball games right it's like turn it on right. let's get going and when you understand the lyrics of the song and the theme of the song it, it actually becomes like this this anguished plea this cry from a person who can't live without the television on right turn it on turn it on again it's it's totally different when you understand what's happening lyrically in the song and it's it's you know it's sad right it's sad to look at the character uh, in the song that way turn it on turn it on turn it on again Like Brad, I worked at uh, you know playing music for some years too, and the one thing about really all of these Genesis singles that became you know top forty singles during this period, I don't tire of any of them. I mean, really, any of them. 
And I think it's such a testament mm. to the song. Well, I'm writing. a little tired. Of I can't dance, frankly. But beyond that, one isn't played. That one didn't get played quite as much uh, anymore. But the ones that that live from here and from Abacab and from Duke and even Invisible Touch, uh, yeah. they're just so structurally sound. They're, they're, there's always a little something to to turn you on. Uh, no pun intended. Right. And especially in this song. I mean, from start to finish. There are all these little hooks. There are, there are you know, probably five, six, seven different ways that Turn It On Again can grab you. Um, and not just talking about the singles. Let me point out, Cul-de-Sac is one of uh, the Banks, you know, more progressive Banks pieces that yeah, I think it is has really... has no right to work as well as it no, does. It's, it, it's, it's so good, though. I love it. I really love it. That You, know, those you series... thought you'd rule the world forever. <laughs> and again, Phil is, is singing these lyrics that Banks has given to him, which he probably thinks are semi-ridiculous, but he's got the voice to pull him off now. He can almost bluff his way through <laughs> I mean, if you thought Turn It On Again was too dark, by the way, then then, then tell me if you like the really cheerful bop and trip that is Please Don't Ask, which is, in a weird way, my second favorite song. My favorite song on this album is always going to be Duchess, but my second favorite song on the album, I think, is Please Don't Ask. This is, again, the one song on this record that no one ever talks about. In mm-hmm. fact, the band has remained kind of tactfully and studiously silent about it. There's no question it would never be played live. There's no question. But it wasn't even discussed in interviews. And why? It's one of the two songs that Phil brought to the group. Everybody brought two songs. And, and everybody did a pretty good job. I hate misunderstanding. America loved it. Fine. <laughs> I guess I'm outvoted. Okay. Um, you know, Tony's had Cool Sack is great. Heat Haze is a little mediocre. But Mike also had two great songs. Alone Tonight I think is really good. And I really love Man of Our Times. Uh, but Phil brought this very dark song. This is the first time ever in in the history of Phil Collins where sort of what would become his sort of signature, which is this very unhappy love songs, uh, comes to the fore. This is, please don't ask me how I feel. I feel fine. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that while he was out doing the tour for and then there were three in 1978 you know he, he he told his wife and they were having huge problems you know and, and he said like we've got to do this this is the this is the tour that can break the band big you know this is this is what we need to to, to sort of make it uh and she said like listen if you go on that tour and you leave i'm not going to be here when you come back and uh he had to do it of course what's he going to do run out on the band um he came back and she'd abandoned him for his house painter and she'd taken the kids with him with her and they're gone and he's alone in a house and it's you know he's crushed you know people talk about phil has all these divorces well i think he probably was deeply affected by the way his first one went down because it basically squashed his brain um and he writes this song it's so painfully open and the band plays it with such power and sympathy that you just can't help but almost it almost feels hard to listen to but because it's so beautiful you stick with it where he says you know well enough of me you know tell me how are you you look good oh you've lost some weight i can see 
your hair looks nice, you look good. But then he gets to the real point, which is that I, I, I can remember a time when it was easy to say that I love you, and now I, I'm really not sure that I can still do. But at the end of it, all he wants to know, he's just like, I, I miss my boy, and, and I hope he's as good as gold. And it's just so sad, and it's so open and naked. There's no, no doubt that the reason they never talked about it or played it is because it's just too... You know, like ripping your heart open and showing your beating chest, you know, ripping your chest open, showing your your palpitating heart to the world. But I love it, and and I, I can also, I, I guess I also love it because it seems so uncharacteristic for a Genesis song of this time or of any time. Uh, please don't ask. Hidden there near the end of Duke. Check it out. Be prepared to cry. times i've listened to the album i'd never realized the connection before that's uh, yeah. yeah thank you for that yeah that's it's just literally about his yeah, wife i see him. that now making the kids <laughs> I, also before we move on to the next album i also want to point out uh we're not going to see this kind of great artwork there's just great artwork on duke we're not going to see that again until we get to we can't dance uh the next few albums are going to be very abstract on purpose terms, yeah yeah, yeah. And I, I yeah, kind of I, I that love that, that little Albert drawing. Yeah, yeah, and the little drawings within the booklet too are nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this brings us, I guess, to what I would say is my second favorite album of the Collins year. As much as I love Duke, I think they topped it. They topped it with an album that actually is kind of a sharp dividing line. There are there are like many dividing lines for Genesis fans. Some people <laughs> say like, uh, I don't like them after Peter Gabriel left. Some people say I don't like them after Steve Hackett left. And then a lot of people will say, like, I don't like them after Duke. Because what happens on Abacab from 1981? Well, they actually make it a self-conscious point to break with a lot of their earlier tropes. Not just compositionally, but also in terms of their sound, in terms of the synthesizers that Tony Banks uses, in terms of the way they're composing and arranging songs. This is in many ways, a true, maybe the truest ever fusion between new wave, post-punk, and prog rock. 
that will ever exist. It's this actually, and and, and this is funny because this is an album I didn't really know much about until we did our Rush episode. Thanks, Brad. Um, <laughs> but I'd say this and like you know, Moving Pictures, you know, are are, are the two albums. That same time come, they came out at the same time. At too. the same time, and boy, you just had to think that they were listening. To and one and add in Ghost in the Machine. Yeah, Ghost in the Machine is a little bit later, I believe. It's nineteen eighty-two. Oh, was it eighty-two? Right? I'm sorry, I was thinking it was eighty-one. Yeah, maybe it was actually. It's hard for me to remember. Yeah, maybe it was eighty-one. But I, I think of Ghost in the Machine with all of its like reggae stuff. Mm. That's a kind of an I set that aside off into a different corner. Mm. But like Abacab is from the opening seconds of the opening song, which is the song Abacab, which was called Abacab not because it's abracadabra or anything like right. that. But it's because it's in its original form. They had an A section, a B section, an A section, a C section, an A section, and a B section. And they were going to arrange it like that. And so it became Abacab. I think Banks jokes is like actually the way that we ended up releasing it. It's like Akababa or something like that instead. Um, uh, it's a angular, aggressive, post-punk song with these very kind of like, you know, I, I would say shrill synthesizer sounds from Tony and, and you know, this sort of squawking guitar approach by Mike Rutherford and lyrics that aggressively make no sense. Nobody in their right mind should be able to attribute any meaning to the phrase waking up and finding your covered in cellophane. <laughs> it doesn't make, it doesn't mean anything. It's not supposed to mean anything. It doesn't matter. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. <laughs> This is the first album I ever purchased as a kid. I wanted to get Invisible Touch. They were sold out of it at the stores. I was seven years old. So I got this one because I had seen my dad's old music videos. And he taped versions of Abacab and No Reply at All. And <laughs> guess what? First two songs on the album, I was a happy kid. Uh, this is it. The first album I ever bought. Still one of my favorite albums of all That's time. That's fantastic. I did not know this was your first album. That is great. I bought it either the day it came out or, or the week it came out. Uh, loved it. I'd already been a Genesis fan at this point. This was seventh grade for me. And I can never, ever separate this album from moving pictures. They both, they, they represent for me the best of rock in junior high. <laughs> and I'm, looking back at it now, I wouldn't have said this at the time because I didn't realize it. But for me, this album is really kind of the perfect art rock album. It's not prog anymore. Uh, though it has very strong prog elements, but it is very artsy, uh, yes, and especially right. on side two. 
uh, when you get to Lurker and Dodo, uh, which I, I think are great songs, but I like Mama, too, on Genesis Genesis. And these are weird songs. They're like Mother from Synchronicity. Right? <laughs> they're, they're these odd things that you don't generally find on pop albums. Um, but the, the end of Lurker, where it's basically, meanwhile, lurking yeah. by a stone in the, in the mud, mud, two eyes looked <laughs> to see where I was. And then something spoke. And this is what it said to me. It's a great... <laughs> Cut to music right here. right <laughs> and then it ends with a riddle did, did you guys realize you know that whole ending yeah. part of lurker like clothes of brass and Who am I? brown <laughs> it, it, it's a submarine is what he's talking about which is why one of the b-sides from this record is called submarine uh they never got around to revealing the punchline uh it was just one of those things that fans had to figure out years later uh, i but didn't like, know that either jeff <laughs> yeah think about it you know no need to breathe you don't need it. no wings to fly heart of stone and a fear of fire and water who am I? You're a submarine. Very doesn't nice. have anything to do with the first half of the song. <laughs> They're just throwing these things together at random. Why? Because it sounds good. That's why. Screw you if you have a problem with it. Fine. If you didn't like that, here's a fart joke called Who Done It. <laughs> well, and I who, love... who, 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 who cut one? Was it you or was it me? Or was it he or she? That's literally what it is. Unfortunately, I like Who Done It. This is the one that everyone hates. But that is a fart joke. It is. It's who cut the cheese in musical form? I, I may like it less now that I know that. <laughs> I always liked that song, too, but I had no idea that was what it was about. out uh, phil collins's man on the corner is a, a beautiful beautiful pop song uh, and you know here minimalism we have, so minimalist yes yeah. absolutely but so meaningful you can actually feel being there on the corner with this man uh, I, I love that i love how it comes together uh and i i think that's a, a great one of phil collins's great contributions uh to, to genesis and to rock overall but i agree from the opening note we get, you know, from the moment we get this angular abacab, I think uh, Me and Sarah Jane is a beautiful love song 
but always like me, me, me and Sarah Jane has like reggae beats into yes. it. Yes. Okay? Well, and that's and why I, I threw the how, how did that not fail? How did Genesis trying to do a reggae kind yeah. of inflected song not become one of like the most hilarious embarrassments <laughs> of their career? No, Instead, it's not. me and Sarah Jane is just glory. Every part of it's, well, it's glorious. so earnest. It's just so yeah. earnest, right? And you, you can't help but fall in love with Sarah Jane. I remember thinking when I was a young kid listening to that song, and I, I, did, I didn't know what it was about. All I had are the lyrics. And like, I didn't know, like, you know, who is this person that he imagines is, you know, is there. It's almost like, is it is somebody who's dead or is it a relationship that, that never was? And then, all, and then finally, it's like first I'm flying, going down, down, down. And then at the end, it's like he's, he's kind of journeying up ginning up scenarios for him. me and sarah jane we had it going all the way and it's almost like he's dreaming of a future that never was the narrator and this is the sort of stuff that this music allowed my young mind to make connections mm. through when i it it, it it was a song that actually was the source of creativity within me which is one of the great tributes that i can pay to a piece of music that it wasn't just creative and melodic in itself but it actually like spurred imagination within the person who listened to it. You know, it, part of this is age, but I always thought that song was about Sarah Jane from Doctor Who, uh, one of Doctor Who's companions, <laughs> and uh, especially with the lyrics, with the falling down and the, the, the flying and so forth. Yeah, like but, you think of the telephone box going right, through, like, the, right? The, the, the but, yeah, but I could be wrong about that, and I, I, I don't know what the band has said about it. I don't know either, Scott. Agree with everything you guys have mentioned. Yes, it's a very stark. I don't think "cold's" quite the right word, but angular art rock all of those things they're all here uh the title track abacab oh i gotta mention this um so in between duke and abacab phil collins is working with peter gabriel on his third album and yeah he, peter gabriel three which is his best album and, yeah. and, and hugh padgham the uh engineer producer and i think accidentally more than anything came across this new way to record drums and if I understand it correctly, it's a set, you know it's a it's a it's a mic above the drums, and then you mess with the compression, so it's so it's gated, which is why it's the open gate drum technique. 
And this is the sound of the 80s. This is the, this is the sound of 80s, if they're not electronically, you know, electronic right. pad drums. They're, right. they're open gate drums on, on everything, you know, Phil is doing here in Genesis and tons of other bands. And it, the difference is so stark. You know, I'm listening to, through all these albums to prep and you go from the end of Duke, you go from, you know, Duke's end and you go right into Abacab. That's the next, you know, in next song in the, in, in, in the sequence. And the difference of the drums from Duke's end to Abacab are enormous. Yeah, you're right. Because right. of that open gate technique. And it sounds huge. It sounds massive. Uh, and I love it. I love Abacab, uh, the song and, and the album, but the song specifically. Man, uh, I, I love. I love that open gate sound here. I love the sound of Banks uh, synths uh, on Abacab. These very stark synths, very sharp guitar, throbbing bass, aggressive vocals. Uh, you know, lengthy about three minutes or so play out uh, 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 on the back end. Uh, that you know, you want it, you got it, you got it. it. That you very aggressive Collins uh, vocals. And then you follow it up with this this uh, R and B tinted yeah. no reply at all with uh, which the, by the way does not have the gated drums it's back to normal yep. sounding drums again uh, with the Earth Wind and Fire horn section and those horns work so well yes. the thing I love most about no reply at all in addition to the horns is that that uh, Rutherford melodic bass riff he's playing throughout it's a beautiful song. Uh, there's there's a giddiness to it that hides the loneliness of the lyrics too. You know, mm. anybody listening, no reply at all. And speaking of that, that very end too. I love the back and forth and back and forth. You know, anybody listening? Oh, do 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 do. No reply at all. Uh, with those horn stabs, uh, I think that's a fantastic, fantastic single. Uh, keep it two dark. Two things, by the way. Two yep. two things I want to say about no reply at all. First of all, as a factoid, this is the only time. Believe it or not, the only time Genesis ever had an outside instrumental mm. player on any of their songs throughout their entire career. Paper Late is the other one that right. was a B-side, right? Because it's the same sessions, the Phoenix Horns. Uh, and the reason that they, those two songs are so similar that only one could go on the album. But beyond that, nope. Never. No strings, no horns, no extra guitarist, nothing. It's just mm. this one song. And the other thing I want to point about is that this is the song the one song that turned me into a Genesis fan. This is the first one that I heard. This is the one that I saw on my dad's videotapes. This is the one where I, you know, Phil is actually drumming and yep. singing at the same time on that performance video. It's a great little video. And playing the horns, too. Yeah, right. So it's not exactly like realistic. <laughs> uh, it didn't, my, my uh, nine-year-old, eight-year-old self didn't know that. Uh, but for me, uh, what, what always sealed no reply for me is one of their truly great songs, and I think it may make my, my end top five it's it's hard to be sure is the middle eight where it goes oh, yeah, into yeah, tony yeah. yeah you know maybe deep down inside i'm lying and then phil just showing how much he'd grown as a vocalist you know and maybe deep down inside i'm lying to no one else but me as the band swells up behind him and they all just go roaring right back into the verse and at that point uh, you flick a switch Jeff is a Genesis for the rest of his life. Maybe deep down inside, I'm trying for no one else but me. Too stubborn to say the buck stops here. It's not the one you're looking for.
another one of those songs, too. I've heard No Reply at all a hundred times, if I've heard it once, and I never tire of it. There's always another hook in there to, to worm its way into your brain. Uh, but tell us about alien abductions, though. Yeah, keep it dark, which is the 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 story. It's a it's a it's a fine story song. Uh, a guy is abducted, taken to this faraway, fantastic place where everything's perfect, and he comes back, but he can't tell anyone because, well, no one would believe him. And so, uh, if Colin's singing in his falsetto, the drums is, is is it's a it's a loop that they that they found that they use over and over again. I compare Keep It Dark to like the sound of a motor humming, uh, purring. That's what that entire rhythm section sounds like on, on Keep It Dark. And you got you already mentioned Who Done It, but I I have in my, in my notes Who Done It is is the Genesis version of McCartney's Temporary Secretary, right? Very odd. Uh, lyrics kind of uh, out of nowhere rhythms there are a fair portion of the people who really hate it because it's so out there and weird uh and a fair number who love it because it's so out there and weird so i i, I make I that think it's really it's really funny to hear phil overheating near the end of that song like <laughs> we don't know we don't know we don't know we don't know he's really 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 determined to get to the bottom of his heart <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry for like uh, sort of ruining that song no. for so many people, but <laughs> no. it, 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 that is that is what it is about. They played it. They by the way, this was not some throwaway song. They played it for the next three tours. They <laughs> loved that song. You gave Mike Rutherford an opportunity to get behind the drums. Everyone would get out of position. Tony would play a keyboard that he never had otherwise. Chester Thompson was the one guy over there. Daryl would go on to bass. Mike would go behind the drums, and Phil would stand <laughs> up like on a riser, like out of play playing guitar. That's like. That's, That's the way they did that song, and it was obviously like their idea of a complete joke and a complete put on. Uh, but I think some people didn't expect Genesis to be so sort of you know, uh, well, it's you know, self-deprecating. In that, in that. Yeah. <laughs> and before, yeah, I love I, said, I love this album so much. But, but before we get to uh, the self-titled album in '83, there's another live album that comes out in yes. between, right? Three Three Sides Live. Three Sides Live, and here's here's the thing. As I said before, I think Genesis is one of the truly great live acts of the rock era. I have so many concerts of theirs that I love to listen to, and yet all of their official releases have always struck me as, I guess, curiously punchless. Perhaps it's because the the song choices have been overworked, or maybe there's too many overdubs or something like that. Three Sides Live is an album that only comes alive for me uh, near the end of it, when they do this giant in-the-cage medley. Um, 
<clears throat> in the cage of course is a classic song from the lamb lies down on broadway and this is this is the part of the concert 1981 where the band is, is throwing a bone to all of their old-time fans and saying <laughs> all right all right all right you wanted to hear some of the old stuff well here's a bunch of it and so they do in the cage and then it goes into cinema show and then it goes into the colony of slipper men they do that great tony banks solo and slipper men that we discussed in our last episode but the thing that actually makes it most notable for me is that it ends with uh, afterglow which is, of course, the end of Wind and Wuthering. And I don't like I don't like the version on Wind and Wuthering. I don't like the version on Seconds Out. This is the only time they've ever released a song twice on a live album. And the reason they did it is because I love, <laughs> love Phil Collins singing Afterglow in 1981. And it is the perfect example of how, as I keep emphasizing, how much he grew as a vocalist, as a singer, he finally turns a song that had just seemed sort of like kind of light, like floopy dross into something that feels like, yeah, apocalyptic. You know, it's thing at the end is like, oh, now, 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 now I've lost everything. I give to you my soul. And then at the end, he says, I miss you more. High note vocal cord shredding high note the band roars in behind it you can just see the light show in your mind if you close your eyes uh it is a truly stunning moment it's one of the very few times on the officially released you know the actual canonical live albums where the true power of the band absolutely comes through so i do i just recommend people go find and listen to that song I like the the Blu-ray release of it where they incorporate all the interviews so it's not just live concert but you've got all these different ideas going around and the guys talking uh, I, I think that's a great a great way to approach it and of course now they don't release it this way now it's four sides live but uh, when that album first came well, out I actually like that those... fourth side with the old songs yeah no I agree but uh, when it first came out it had those extra basically the b-sides that were thrown in there and some of them are pretty good <laughs> it's yeah pretty paper fun. late I yeah. mean you might recall yeah all absolutely good songs. Virgil and me I mean there's some those are some good stuff evidence of autumn's a fine yeah. song too. evidence I, of I, autumn I, is very good now Scott how often were you uh, allowed to play paper late on the radio as, as a DJ oh pretty often I mean, that, that was in the uh, the regular rota- <laughs> that was a that's a top 40 uh, track and yeah. so it's yeah. uh, it's in pretty regular rotation on most uh, rock radio stations uh, it's a great song as as Jeff mentioned it, too it was too similar to uh, no reply to, to include right. it on the album, but certainly on the three by three release and, and elsewhere, uh, it's a great track. And this now takes us after another world conquering tour. We actually there's something interesting that does happen in between. So Genesis tours Abacap, huge success, 
Three Sides Live is a big commercial success. And in fact, they do something that they've never done before. They actually just decided to say, screw it, we're going to book a Three Sides Live tour, sort of just to piggyback on the success of Three Sides Live. And what they actually do that makes this so notable, though sadly there are no officially released documents of it, I have the bootlegs, ask me, um, is they play Supper's Ready, the whole damn thing, all 24 minutes of it, from front to back for the last time. It's the 10th year anniversary of the song. In 81 or 82? 82. Yeah, wow. I didn't bit. know that. Okay, Brad, we'll talk later. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. I would you're love gonna, to. You're going to want to hear this. Yes. All right. Uh, and, they, they, and, and Phil, just so, so much more confident playing and singing that song than he was back in 77. Everybody just kills it. Uh, but the other big thing, of course, is that Peter Gabriel, meanwhile, in his solo career, has really hit some, some horrible shoals. He he tried to put together this world beat festival, this world right. music festival called WOMAD. And it was really good musically, but it just lost just money hand over fist, like half a billion or half a million. No, actually, no, half a half a million pounds at least and like the creditors are threatening to break gabriel's legs you know like he's got no money no way to pay them off and so what does the band do well they get together with their manager tony stratton smith who's also peter's manager and they say like well, we just do a reunion concert so they actually did the, what nobody thought would ever happen is that the whole band reunites in 1982 to play a one-off gig where peter comes out in a coffin carried by attendants <laughs> climbs out of the coffin and sings back in New York City to start a whole like old school Genesis concert. Steve Hackett comes out for the encores. They play Supper's Ready, Dancing with the Moonlit Night, the musical box, I Know What I Like, all of that stuff that you wanted to hear. And it's just one of those great moments where it just shows you that these guys like, you know, they're all very like, gentlemanly and friendly, and they're all going like, to you know help each other out when they need to get help. <laughs> they're not going to they're not going to abandon one another. Jeff, is this the is that when Talk Talk opened for him? Yes, that is yeah. exactly what Talk Talk. Yeah, opened a for very him. young this, Talk this, Talk. This is this, like very yeah yeah parties over era Talk Talk, yeah. nineteen eighty two, right? Uh, and of course, what they're also doing in this time is they're workshopping what's going to become the music for their next album. And if you thought Abacab was different from Duke, well, Genesis somehow manages to be equally as different from Abacab. And this one actually kind of falls between tall stools. This is the beginning of them kind of launched onto the path of commercial superstardom, and yet it seems to be curiously forgotten about by yes. a lot of people. Yes. Uh, I think this, it, it may be because it's just called Genesis is the name of the album. It's their self-titled album. 15 years into their career, they finally put out a self-titled album. Uh, I don't think there is a single flaw on this album. Uh, perhaps some of those lyrics to Illegal Alien on a song. <laughs> um, uh, I love this record, and it, it's a record that somehow managed to be a massive commercial success while just actually taking a ton of chances. Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible to believe that something like Mama was a worldwide It's smash the opening hit. track. Right. The, the, only, not... the only place it wasn't a hit was in America, ironically it's, enough. It's Everywhere else, highest, it's a number one. Highest charting single ever in the UK. Yeah, it's and, and this is a song yeah. about a guy who falls in love with a prostitute and becomes nearly murderously obsessed with her. Uh, that's Mama for you. And it, it's got Phil Collins doing like, ha-ha, ha <laughs> <laughs> Like weird vocalese in the middle of the song. Yeah, that's your pop smash of 1983. I I love the song. I love the daring of that song. Yes. And I, I, I think that it just applies to the album in general. 
I'm flabbergasted that this uh, is not talked about more as again one of the one of the best and and, and key albums of the '80s. If you, I'm gonna just run down the track list and not all of it, but look, you know, Mama, and you know that's all, and you know, Illegal Alien, and you know, Taking It All Too Hard, mm-hmm. and you know, Just a Job to Do, and you might know Home by the Sea, and it's it's gonna get better. Is I mean, all of these tracks, they're all they're all fantastic, and uh, what seven of the nine or whatever it is became, uh, you know, tracks that were that were played on the radio, and and many are still continue still continue to be played. Today, you know this album, even if you don't think you know this self-titled album. Uh, again, it, it's I a think sh- a lot of people, like I did, even when I was a kid, I thought it was a Phil Collins stuff. When I heard That's All, first of all, I didn't know it was called That's All. I thought it was called It's Always the Same, It's Just a Shame. <laughs> and then I just thought, well, because Phil Collins is everywhere, I guess that's just another Phil Collins song. I didn't realize that it was Genesis. I think there's a lot of casual radio listeners that fell into that trap, too. I I never tire of hearing any of these singles, uh, any of them at all. Uh, uh, that's all uh, is is that that just simple piano intro from Tony Banks, thumping kick drum. It's a very simple. It's a very simple song. Uh, it's a great solo. Uh, late from. Would you believe they thought that was their idea of country and western music? That I, just shows, yeah. I that just shows that. you how truly country fried Phil yeah. Collins and the boys are. But that's a fantastic song. Um, Home by the Sea. Uh, this this ghost story guy you know breaks into a house and is uh, thinks going to rob the place instead the the home uh, sort of entraps him won't let him leave and forces him to listen to all the stories of years past of things that have happened in the house uh, great song great melody great delivery by Collins the way he's sort of barking out sit down sit down uh, as we relive our relive our lives and what we tell you. Time we 
uh, Home by the Sea. There's a second Home by the Sea, which is the uh, the instrumental half of that song. Uh, just a job to do, which uh, I, I think Jeff loves a lot too. The uh, story of of uh, a hitman, essentially. Phil Collins is hitman, contract killer. Contract yeah. killer. I think that's just a perfect meld of the band. Collins' drums are wonderful. Uh, Rutherford has this this you know this little guitar figure. And then Tony Banks pushing it forward with those those synths and the synth tones. It's such a strong, melodic, uh, instrumental portion of the song. And you lay on top the uh, bang, 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 pop, pop, down you go. Um, just a job to do with a great, great track. Now don't keep saying that it's all If there's one track that you think was a Collins track, it's taking it all too hard, right, uh, on the entire album. But that's a light, that's a pretty Nothing song. Nothing wrong with that song. Nothing wrong? Nothing wrong at all. He's not, it, it, Rutherford's not playing mandolin, I don't think, but the way he's playing that 12-string sounds like it could be a, a mandolin. It's a really sweet, pretty song, top to bottom. This self-titled album is just it's killer the whole way through. So this album came out at the same time as Grace Under Pressure, and this was sophomore year of high school for me, and sorry to be so autobiographical about some of this, but I, I cannot separate this album from debate and high school debate tournaments. We used to play this all the time on our trips, uh, and my my uh, one of my best friends in high school, Ron Strayer, my debate colleague and I, we were obsessed with this album and uh, played it constantly. I actually, this may sound strange to you guys, but I actually think it's the last three songs that make this album as spectacular as it is. Uh, it's the the previous songs that did so well on the radio. But once you get to Just a Job to Do and Silver Rainbow with the synth in that, uh, and then it's going to get better. I, I think those last three songs are some of the most perfect songs ever to conclude an album. I think that it, it just comes together brilliantly with those three. I think the funny part about Silver Rainbow is that people will listen to that song their entire lives and not realize that it's really about scoring with a It ship. is, I know. <laughs> you know, yeah, the Silver Rainbow is the parted jeans zipper, my friends. And beyond the Silver Rainbow, you won't know if you're coming or going. Uh, yeah, you, you figure that one out. It it's a little crass, but there's yeah. something... But the thing is, it isn't crass because, again... Most people will never figure out that right. that's what it's about. Well, so. yeah, I love the idea that if you don't know what's going on, you're you're there, right? That's the right. that's <laughs> the whole point.
fun song. I I, I think that the, this album, I, just a job to do. Yeah, Scott, you are absolutely right that I love that song, and I just love Phil's delivery of that lyric. You know, as you said, the old bang, 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 and down you go. It's just a job you do. Uh, you know, he says, "I got a name, I got a number, and I got a line on you." He actually, this is like the most nice, polite, very diminutive, balding <laughs> front man of, of a prog rock British band. But man, he sounds like he could shoot you in the face. It is a pretty there's definitely aggressive. a Miami Vice feel to that. Very Miami yeah. Vice feel to it. Yes, exactly. I'm surprised that it wasn't used on that as right. well. <laughs> and and I guess the other thing is we have to have we cannot leave this album yeah. without discussing illegal alien. Yes. Uh, uh, I man, love that. Is an, I, that is an earworm. I, I lament this song because it is one of the most catchy pieces of music on the entire record. Well, and it's sympathetic, I, actually, to the illegal that, alien. That, 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 <laughs> oh, but sort of sympathetic, though, because, like, remember, he's just like... Well, that's true. You know, I just want to go, you know, over to the border of the promised land where everything comes easy and you just hold out your hand. Listen, I'm not a big fan of illegal immigration, but I'm going to tell you that the people who come to America do not do it because they just want to sit and get, like, welfare checks. They work their butts off, all right? And then, of course, also he says, it's like, you know, like, hey, I ain't done nothing wrong. Oh, but by the way, you know, if you want to, like, bang my sister or get me a piece <laughs> She's willing. Really shady stuff. And then, of course, the music video makes it six times worse. Yeah. They're wearing sombreros and fake Mexican mustaches. Well, the accent, the fake accent is so bad. Oh, my God. If you watch that, it was lovingly remastered for for the reissued, remixed version, too. So you can find like a nice updated one. Oh, my gosh. But at the end of the day, you will. You hear that song once, and you'll be singing to yourself. Well, oh, well, it's no fun being a legal alien. I mean it when I tell you. It, it just worms its way into your head. And the thing about the song is that the chorus melody, I think, is the at least the third catchiest part of that song. It, it's the you know the beginning, do 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 do. But then the, those those hard driving first couple of verses. That's the best part of the song. <laughs> that those verses are fantastic. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Don't mean it a thing. It, it ain't written. Count, man. It ain't written. <laughs> I love that part. I mean, this is. I mean, absolutely one of the songs you can't help but like, despite the obstacles. <laughs> was so politically incorrect. Even in releasing the archives two box set back in like 2002 before like if they had tried to do this now there's no way that it would have released a live version of that song <laughs> it's just like yeah it's wrong in a lot of different ways yeah. but musically it's undeniable it's such a good song and, and again i don't think there's there's anything 
bad on this album. I think I'll say like it's gonna get better. Yeah. Is a song that it works a lot better live. Yeah. Uh, on the 83-84 tour than it does on the studio version. I think it comes alive a lot more. They actually throw in an extra verse on it that they didn't have on the studio one. Mm. I think they just, they just edited it out. Um, but yeah, there's there's nothing to criticize here. The, the biggest criticism I can mount against it musically is that I think Second Home by the Sea, the whole like ghost mm-hmm. dance thing, where it feels like you're in the Castlevania video game or something like that. <laughs> and, like, the chairs are now floating <laughs> around the room and you know, there's there's ghost waltzers and things like that. Eh, that 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 really isn't my bag, but uh, the rest of this album is just wonderful, and it's a strange thing that it falls between the cracks because yeah, it does have one of their biggest hit singles, and that's all. You know, uh, again, a very simple song. Just when I thought it was going all right, I found that I'm wrong. When I thought it was right, pretty clearly a full lyric, <laughs> but it, it works. It works really well. I think he said that he wanted to do like. Um, Sort of like you know the drum beat was sort of like a country esque shuffle instead of like you know something proggy, and so that's where he gets the sort of C and W feel from it in his own mind. Although that doesn't come across to anyone who actually listens to the song. The thing that happens, of course, after this is that Phil Collins himself explodes. 1983 right. is the Genesis album. Uh, also, it's the year that he releases his own solo song album, "Hello, I Must Be Going," and then you know. Step by step, ends up conquering the planet. <laughs> yes, uh, against the all voice odds. Of the eighties, against all odds, which I actually just adore. I it's love a good that song. song. It is it, another one that was a face value outtake, another heartbreak song, but it's so good. And then no jacket required. And I hate the studio with a passion, but you know what? I'll go to bat for "Take Me Home." You Take know, Me Home is an incredible song. Oh. backing vocals there repaying a favor i'm sure uh fantastic piece of music and of course this is the you know the time where phil plays live aid in both london and in philadelphia <laughs> and thanks to the, the concord <laughs> he flies the concord back so he can play the evening show you know you know that's because time zones allow him to go back in time yes <laughs> to mm. do both yeah, we're back to that uh, doctor who theme yeah. <laughs> and and this is the moment where Actually, everybody who is either in Genesis or an ex-member of Genesis seems to be rising to their commercial zenith. Mm-hmm. Because uh, one of the most hilarious you know, pieces of coincidental kismet uh, on the Billboard 100 you know, top charts is uh, that Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer from So uh, is immediately replaced at number one a week later by Genesis with Invisible Touch. 
And that, of course, brings us to the the big commercial zenith of Genesis's career. This is the album Invisible Touch. age or a little older is essentially unavoidable you whether you like it or not know at least five of these songs by heart you know invisible touch you know tonight 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 you know land of confusion you know in too deep you know throwing it all away um most of them not all are great songs and this is also one of those those albums that in my opinion you know of course i got it when i was a kid it was the second album i bought because remember i couldn't get it the first time i tried um i loved it as a kid and then I kind of grew to hate it in the late 90s, you know, mm-hmm. when I become a, a, a musical snoot. Uh, and also, I just think that the production felt like it had aged really badly mm-hmm. in the late 90s. We're in the grunge era, the post-grunge era at that point. Uh, but that weirdly enough, in 2020, actually sounds really good. <laughs> it sort of made a comeback, yeah. like, and particularly some of the themes of these songs, too. Like, you know, you listen to Land of Confusion, that might have sounded like, you know, Maybe a little bit overheated during the Reagan era, where we it, we didn't have a nuclear apocalypse and everything actually ended up working fine. You know, the, the Berlin Wall fell and you know communism collapsed and all that. Uh, but in 2020, man, every day I think to myself, "Can't you see this is the land of confusion?" <laughs> and I have no idea what's going on. And uh, I, I think that song just has gained in its strength over the past. 30 years in a way that I would never have expected. And Jeff, that song in particular, the production, I, I disliked it um, probably around the same time that you did. I mean, I, I, you know, thinking maybe early 90s, mid 90s, I would listen to Atlantic Confusion and think that's not, it's not what I want to hear. Listening back to it today in preparation, it sounds better. It sounds, it certainly didn't change between now and then, but I like it more now. You know, the, kind of the, the shump, shump, and, and, and sort of the, uh, the big echoey drums. I think it sounds. I think it sounds good. I think it holds up okay. I don't, it holds up more than okay. I think there there are lyrics in there that I guess I didn't even realize uh, had the power that they did until I got older. There's that great line at the end where uh, you know Phil is singing, and this is a Mike Rutherford lyric. I'm fairly sure. Is like, yes, yes. I won't come home tonight. My generation will put it right, which is pure sarcasm. You know, he's saying like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, we're going to we're going to figure it out. We boomers, we're going to put it right. And of course, they're not. We're going to make a bigger mess of things than we have already. It's all going to hell. And yeah, you know, everybody hates boomers now. So like, sorry, Brad, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a boomer. It's OK.
it, I also, in my mind, is inevitably tied to the video. Yes. We don't talk about Genesis. I love that video. The video is, is, is classic. It's the spinning image, the British right. spinning image puppets. Which can uh, be a little over the top, but still the great. Fu- the funny thing about it is spinning image was this British sort of parody political show with these like really grotesque puppets. And they asked the guys, was like, hey, would you like to do a video for our song? And they said, sure. And they, they didn't need – they had to make Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford puppets for the video, but they didn't need to make a Phil Collins one <laughs> because they'd already been skewering him mercilessly <laughs> for the past two years on the show because, of course, that was when he was, like, you know, unavoidable on the pop charts and doing the whole, like, live-A jet-setting thing. But you just see them, like, completely willing to make themselves look repulsive and ugly. <laughs> and also it's, it's, it's a video that, that like, like the meme, the internet meme, has Ronald Reagan riding a dinosaur to the rescue mm. which again in a very superman costume very futuristic yeah um this it, it is un- unavoidable and you know invisible touch went to number one and it was everywhere the song yeah uh, the album didn't go to number one in the states and that's certainly the the gloopiest shiniest song that they probably ever did well yeah. in too deep into yeah okay in too deep so there's at least two of them here uh but a lot of this is really good. And that, you know, when I talked about having the best, you know, st- mainstream rock albums of the 80s, you do include Invisible Touch because there are wonderful moments. Land of Confusion, which Jeff talked about. Tonight, 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 which I don't know if people realize is a, is a nine-minute song. You know, they cut it down for a single version, and it was also in the Michelob ads yeah. in, the, in the 80s, the Michelob rock ads of the 80s. But it's so uh, but dark. This, it's, it is so dark. It's an insanely dark track, and it is a, it is a crazy good track from, you know, that sort of um, um, the, 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 the drum machine track that opens it up. I, I tell you, for the longest time, listening to these lyrics, I, you know, I, I heard it's going down, going down like a monkey, right? I was convinced that that was not it. Like, I misunderstood Phil Collins saying something British that was not, you know, I, I don't know what... And of course, it is. It's you know they didn't put monkey into that song, did they? Right, they did, they did multiple times. It's you know a, a drug addict trying to score uh, a fix essentially, and you know you keep telling me I got everything and trying to be you know talked out of the lifestyle, and um, that, that's my favorite part. That you know you tell me you got everything, and you keep telling me you're gonna help me, you're gonna help me, but you don't. Um, tonight, tonight, tonight's fantastic track. The other one I, I wanted to highlight is uh, is throwing it all away, and that's yes. one that is very easy to sort of throw into the the, the, the gloopiness of Invisible Touch and and Into Deep, which uh, Patrick Bateman will tell you the uh, merits of Into Deep. But <laughs> throwing it all away is a perfect, perfect 
pop song on so many levels. Heartfelt vocals from Collins, a wonderful set of lyrics uh, from from Rutherford. Uh, that that double tracking in the lead vocals. I think it's in the third verse. The final verse kills me every time. Every who time. Who let up the darkness? And who will hold your hand? Yeah, but then you, you know, someday you'll be sorry. Someday when you're free, memories will remind you our love was meant to be. But late at night when you call my name, the only sound you'll hear is the sound of your voice calling, calling out for me. Oh, it destroys me. And that live version that Jeff has shared with me and I think some other people via Twitter uh, will kill you. It will, it will just demolish you. It is so powerful. Uh, Seven minutes long, and he does the audience cone response bit. Yeah. It's so good. It's so good, and throwing it all away is just one of the best pop songs of this era, and it just sort of sits right in the middle of, of Invisible Touch. Now, the darkness, and who will hold your hand? We'll find you the answers when you don't understand. Why should I have to be the one who has to convince you? Domino and and uh, Brazilian. I mean, this is really another. It, I, I, I again think it, both Genesis and Invisible Touch are are overlooked a bit because of the of 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 well, Collins being ubiquitous at that time, and, and certainly Invisible Touch, the song being sort of the standout number one track. But deep inside this album, the bones are still really good. It's a strong album. Brad. Uh, I'm a I'm a huge fan of this album, but uh, again with iTunes, I cut it in half. I never <laughs> I never stopped listening to it, but I had tonight 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 Land of Confusion, Domino, and the Brazilian uh, that I've never stopped listening to. Those are my favorite tracks How on it. How did you take away throwing it all away? You man? know, I, I, I like I, it. I'm upset. No, I, I like it. I think it's a good song. It just never grabbed me. I think the way that now probably after you guys talking about it, I'll go back and listen to it in a different way. Um, and I always I thought Domino was to me it was a, a hearkening back to Duke. Uh, there's something kind of a pop prog, nice apocalyptic sound uh, with Dom. I mean, those themes never really go away for Genesis. They're always kind of worried about the end of the earth. Uh, that's always there, hovering over everything since supper's ready, right? They've been oh, yeah, I mean, that. from Genesis to Revelation. Yeah, I, absolutely <laughs> right. Of course, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I think Domino has some great lyrics. I think it's got some great themes to it. Uh, I like it. And I, I think it's great that these guys still had enough gumption to end with something as bizarre as the Brazilian. Uh, 
you know, it's not it's not your normal it's not your normal rock fair, but it's a great driving instrumental. Um, I can to, feel the heat coming off of that song. I mean, it literally yes, feels I like agree. It, it it's the Amazon jungle. It, it's the humidity. It's, it, it's just it's like yeah. 103 degrees, 100% yep. humidity, yep. and you're seeing like bugs just climbing yep. all over a tree. Yep, those keyboard, that, that opening, keyboard that, sounds. And, yeah, yeah. You can feel the alienness of it. Oh, millions of tiny insects just like swarming over a carcass or something like that. It's really kind of disturbing, but also fascinating. And of course, a very bold way that like, it's almost like an album where they're like, okay, you know, we've given you, you know, seven tracks of of pop uh well except for that one about nuclear war right and, th- and then we're going to give you this really crazy instrumental uh, they also played it on every show of the tour and they you know killed it each time i said that would be a perfect live song The one, the one that really was, it turned out to be the biggest live crowd pleaser from this album was Domino, which you might not have expected, but they had a big light show that goes with it, and it was also one of those that that, that never suffered, even as Phil's like vocal cords and his range started to decrease. This is the era where he starts kind of shooting out his voice the way that mm. happened to say Bono, mm. you know, of U2. It happened to Tom York of Radiohead. Just going out there every night and singing at the top of your lungs, it's it's eventually going to do long term damage. Oh, yeah, so, it, happened, it happened to Meatloaf too. Let's it happened forget. to Meatloaf. Yeah, it happens to to almost everyone. This is. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. No, I was just going to say, but Domino still retains power even in the reunion tour era, like the part where you can you can almost forgive you can almost almost forgive tony banks for writing a lyric like take a look at the beautiful river of blood that's how powerful the second half of the song is but you need you need that in the glow of the night section yes to sort of set it up because it's this very kind of lyrical sad haunted ballad uh kind of sort of a home by the sea vibe to it right it's obviously like some bombed out place you know there are memories and there's death and there's loss and and all of a sudden there's this rage you know whenever when the drums first kick in you know uh, and then you know phil just starts screaming about blood on the windows yeah millions of ordinary people are there uh it it it's the kind of thing that should sag under the weight of its pretensions, but every single time when you get to the Phil saying, you know, you, there's nothing you can do and you're the next in line. You gotta go domino. And it, it is uh, the kind of thing that Patrick Bateman can't ruin it for me, okay? <laughs>
I sometimes think that one of the reasons that people like have made fun of Genesis more than they might otherwise have is because of American Psycho. Same. Because it was turned into the film and they got all these iconic scenes that have turned into gifs, into memes. You know, like, hey, do you like Genesis? You know, it's the same thing with Huey Lewis in the news. That's right. Yep. That's why yeah. I think you got to give him a second chance or a third no, chance. No, no, that ain't happening, my friend. But with Genesis, I will reclaim them from the, the clutches of an imagined serial killer. Uh, this song is a banger from the day it was recorded to the present day. And in fact, they in- apparently intend to go on tour in 2021. And uh, I'm certain I they're going to be playing it. it again because it still works. Yeah. This is, uh, I, on a personal note, this was senior year. Uh, this album came out. Actually, I just got my acceptance letter for college. And this album came out. Those things are always connected to me uh, in my mind. But I also, I started getting a little bit of Phil Collins exhaustion at this point and it was actually I didn't want to lose my Genesis love so it was right with Invisible Touch that I started exploring the whole Peter Gabriel era mm-hmm. uh, I had been listening to the Phil Collins era from the really the opening of it when I was about nine but uh, the Peter Gabriel era opened up to me at this time so I went back and now I mean I love the Peter Gabriel era as well oh. but that w- this was when I started exploring it <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, you're, I, I came to it the other way, right? Because as, I, as I mentioned on our first show, I mean, this is the stuff that I first experienced as a young kid. And then I got basically to, on a dare to myself, I bought The Lamb Lies Down in my senior I did. Year That's exactly school. what I did. <laughs> I was just yep. like, well, you know, might as well do this, you know. And, and then, of course, I was my mind was blown yep. by the weirdness of that record. Absolutely. And, uh, the rest is history for me, and that's yeah. how they became my favorite band. I suppose, unless anybody has any final words to say on this album, this takes us to, well, is I sometimes I will call it the last album of Genesis's <laughs> career, the last real album of Genesis's career. I'm sorry, Ray Wilson. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't really think calling all stations is something I want to spend a lot of time talking about. But We Can't Dance is legitimate. Genesis album and it's the last one it was 1991 they took their sweet time Phil was busy yeah. doing his solo career Mike was doing Mike and the Mechanics Mike Rutherford like the most anonymous guy in Genesis even he was scoring massive hit singles he had to put Paul Carrick in front of the, the vocals to do it <laughs> but like you know silent running can you hear me can you hear me running and then like all I need is a miracle and then he even got a number one with the living years which is one of those out songs that people like to pretend they never sent a number one um, but I still kind of like myself. Um, they finally reunited for We Can't Dance. And this is the last album of the Phil Collins years. Uh, and this is the one where yeah, you can definitely see a, a, a bit of decline. Some of the seams are showing in the sense that it's obvious where there are some songs that are clearly Phil tracks. Like Never a Time is an obvious Phil Collins song. Since I Lost You, obviously a Phil Collins song. Way of the World is obviously a Tony, or rather a Mike Rutherford mm-hmm. song. 
Uh, would you believe? Most people don't realize this, but hold on my heart, that's 100% Tony Banks. Uh, not a Phil song. You would have thought, oh, soft, gloopy pop, you know, you know, adult contemporary pop ballad. No, Hold On My Heart is Tony Banks, and it also holds the distinction of being the first CD single, or cassette single, rather, that my wife ever purchased. <laughs> when she was a young girl, she just had to go get Hold On My Heart by Genesis. And I actually, uh, you know, another unpopular opinion, I suppose, but I, I really like that song. I, I've never hated it. I think it's it's quite pretty, even though it is so soft. And, and, and that, I think, is sort of what the overwhelming impression I get from this album is, is that the hard edges have been sanded away by age, maybe by contemporary tastes, maybe by, you know, Phil uh, it has you know, a more dominant voice in the band, and that's where he feels like going. Uh, but I listened to this album again this morning, thinking that it was gonna, I was going to dislike it. And the truth is, is that while there are songs that I don't like, I could throw away about you know four or five tracks on this album. Well, it is seventy-one a, minutes long, so throw away for a seventy-one minute album. <laughs> it's just like a solid fifty minutes on this that I genuinely like, including some of the longer stuff. So, uh, what do you guys think of the swan song for Phil? Uh, we can't dance. You know, th this album for me, I, I, I don't dislike it and I don't like it. There's never, it's just been a kind of a mediocre album for me. It's another rock album. It doesn't even strike me that much as a Genesis album. I do like the proggier stuff on it. Uh, I like Driving the Last Spike, especially live. And I like Fading Lights quite a bit. Mm. Uh, I think both of those songs are really good. The stuff in between, again, it just never really grabbed me one way or the other. I, I bought the album when it came out, and I listened to it a few times, and then I went back to their other stuff. I, it just, uh, I, I couldn't even. You know, there are other other albums. I know every lyric. I know every. I know every uh, time signature. Uh, <laughs> but with this one, it's just kind of tapioca for me in a lot of ways. Uh, I guess I'm largely in the same ballpark as Brad. I mean, this is one I, I actually recall uh, when it came out. And I I would watch the video for I Can't Dance over and over again until I had memorized the lyrics. I could still sing you I Can't Dance right now. Uh, probably. Probably. Um, <laughs> my dad, my, when I, I loved that video, and I was obsessed with it. Of course, I was watching it like, on VH1 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, turned to my dad. I was like, this is such a great song. This is such a great band. I love this song. And my dad, in that gentle way that only fathers can, uh, sort of just said, well, Jeff, you know, it's amusing. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's really not that great, you know. That's the way my dad. And, and I, I remember feeling stung by that. <laughs> oh. I was, I was like, I love that song. But, you know, of course, he had the wisdom that age and a mature taste uh, uh, you know, Grant, and so he was able to say, like, yeah, you know, this is not a bad song, but listen, it's a trifle. It's what it is. That's the way my dad treated my early love for Steve Miller. That's the exact oh. same way. Oh. <laughs> uh, but you know, elsewhere on the on the album uh, of the of the album tracks, I guess, uh, "Fading Lights," Brad mentioned, is, is good. I, I think "Dreaming While You Sleep" is pretty good. There's, mm. it's it's too much. It's seventy one minutes. It just really is too much. Um, the other, you know, the singles. No set of mine is kind of interesting, mm -hmm. but I don't I don't think it's it, sort I of think distinctive it's a pretty, in it, its way. It, 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 Here's the thing. I think it's a really powerful song, uh, but the darkness of it actually, I guess it feels weirdly uncharacteristic for Genesis. Maybe it's a reminder that they didn't always give you happy, upbeat endings. Hmm. Because like this is a song where like what, the, 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 what's the what's the plot here? It's like you, the kid is is watching his dad abuse his mom physically, you know, and he runs away from home. And then years and years later, he comes back because he feels like I have to settle accounts. I have to 
make a reckoning. And so, like, what is it? He sat me down to talk to me. He looked me straight in the eye. And what did he say? He didn't say, I love you, son. I'm sorry. He said, no, you're no son of mine. You walked out and left us behind. And that's it. That's the ending. Yeah, there, there's brutal. no there's no uh, there's no happy resolution here. It's the son being rejected by his family for it, leaving them. thing is if you hear phil talk about the song it's not as if he set out to write this heavy father-son uh you know tete-a-tete it was he was just sort of scatting over the melody and the what the phrase that came to his mind was you're no son of mine which is like a really weird phrase to just mm-hmm. pop in your mind when you're listening to, to the music but that's phil's the... always got that little depressive touch yeah. that you, always, you underestimate right the other one i mean jesus he knows me was a single <laughs> and, and it did all right and musically i like that one quite a bit yeah. you know lyrically and i think jeff made this point in an email it's like it's five years too late it I mean, is exactly yeah. five years this too song, late. this song would have been really subversive in 1986 yes yes and in 1991 everyone knows it's about jimmy out. swagger and jim yeah. baker and like you know like no and tammy faye and all of that and like you know why are you going after televangelists again it feels like one of those things that they just sort of improvised lyrically after coming up with this great musical idea in the background and they just went with it, and they was like, "Ah, we can spin out some lyrics from this." But <laughs> it, 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 even in 1991, because I remember this is the first Genesis album I bought, like on the day it was released. Um, I remember thinking to myself, "I was like, well, isn't this old news? Haven't we been making fun of televangelists here in America for like a good solid half a decade now?" Um, and of course, I was 10 years old, and I knew that, <laughs> so I yeah. don't understand why that they, they, they thought this. But here's the other thing: is that you can't really deny. The, the fantastic chorals and, and and the lead up to that chorus is so good mm. you know yes. you know you don't even have to touch that dial ooh because I'm everywhere and Jesus he knows me and he knows I'm right it's a great piece of music mm. it's funny it's sort of sabotaged in a similar way that illegal alien is sabotaged mm-hmm. but in the, not because it's offensive <laughs> uh, but just because it's outdated and it's curiously pointless
And then uh, I know Jeff wants to talk about this, so I'll just lead into uh, him. There's a great song left off this album, which is on the Archives 2 collection called On the Shoreline. On the Shoreline. And the only, the only criticism I'd make, and then Jeff can tell you how great it is, is it does suffer a bit from like early 90s electric Production, piano yeah. type sound. Uh, you know, the Banks' piano sounds a little dated on it. But other than that, it's as good as anything else on, on We Can't Dance, that's for sure. I've been talking with friends who are other super huge Genesis fans about this, and the only theory that we have about as to why it was left off is because that they had already fallen in love with the idea of no son of mine, that, that whole tick-tock, 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 mm-hmm. tick-tock, as being like the natural opening for the record. And so on the shoreline itself, that has to be the opening for an album too, right? I mean, <clears throat> where else is that song going to go? It's either one or it's the other. And they went with No Son of Mine, made it the single, so they left off on the shoreline. But man, that is a great song, great vocal performance, and it has one of those nice little very sunny, open expanding middle eights where you know can you take me there to the other side and like all of a sudden you just remember like this is old 80s genesis come back again where did this go something that isn't 80s genesis that feels very much like another mike rutherford social observation song that i'm not allowed to like i'm not supposed to like but i love it i love it i love it so much i love it with every bit of my heart and it's a song called tell me why one of these anonymous songs on the second half of the album and it's like you know you know you know children crying in the streets mothers dying at their feet tell me why it almost feels like a flight of the concords parody of a protest <laughs> song like you know uh you know urban pressure or something like that um but when phil gets to that chorus you know can you see that shaft of sunlight can you see it in my eye and like he sings of like anger and hope so deep and all of a sudden like yeah i'm just uh, i'm reminded of being 12 and you know like you being like immensely moved by silly you know pop songs that tug on my heartstrings and try to move my conscience uh, i think that one really holds up every single time i hear it i forget how much i like it and i have to go back and hear it again Can you see that
last thing I want to say about this album is Fading Lights, which I think is an appropriate way to end and is the way that Genesis, frankly, mm-hmm. should have ended. Right. Um, a lot of the long prog epics on this album I don't think hold up. I think driving, I don't like driving the last bike mm. at all. I think it's just a mess. Even the live version? No, even okay. the live. It's just, it's just, just a lot of ideas thrown together with any, any it, oh, you're going to hate me for this, Brad. It reminds me of those early Rush prog songs oh, that yeah. are just sort of stuck, to, stuck together with little cohesion. Yeah. Right? Um, but I do love Fading Lights. And one of the reasons I love it is because it does work so well as a valediction for this band. You know, it's about old men looking as the sun sets. Maybe they're sitting in rocking chairs on a porch somewhere. They're talking about faraway, distant lights leaving us all behind. Uh, and there's that great that line that Phil sings: "You're lost in a changing world," uh, and you almost feel like that's the way that the band might, you know, feel about the way music is now finally passing them by. They had spent a career surfing on top of these trends, being a part of them, getting ahead of them, unlearning bad habits and and learning to work in different ways, always somehow managing to fight their way to the top and to to stay current and to stay relevant. And now, now the lights are dimming. Now they're old men. Now there are fading lights. And I think that that's a great way for them to end the album. And I, and I think that that's the, you know, their last truly great song. But now we have to talk about calling all stations, don't we? <laughs> I guess. Oh, no, we see, just, that's the thing. They didn't take just, their own advice. We can't just cut it out of the discography. Although, quite frankly, I, I have never heard the whole thing, and I did not listen. I, I did not listen for uh, uh, for this. So Phil, I mean, Phil Collins leaves. Uh, you know, Rutherford and Banks uh, a couple of times said they were surprised he stayed as long as he did. Uh, because of his solo success, and he was acting, you know, he was acting in Buster, and he had a lot of stuff going on, soundtracks and and and, and elsewhere. And so finally, after after we can't dance, he he leaves the band. And of course, there's thoughts of of just shutting things down, but that's never been Genesis's way, I guess. And uh, Banks and Rutherford get back, Rutherford get back in the studio, and uh, and, and write some stuff, and they and they find they still have at least a little spark between them. And then much like the uh, much like the uh, uh, Audition sessions. Yes, for Trick thank of you. The That's exactly yeah. where I'm going. Uh, for Trick of the Tail, they begin to figure out who's going to sing these songs. And while it worked really well with Phil Collins, 
it didn't work as well with Ray Wilson, and they admit it. You know, if, if we knew the singer who was going to sing these songs, we would have written them in a slightly different way. Um, and the stuff, I mean, I've heard Congo was the, was, the, was the lead single off the album. I've heard that. I've heard a few other things. There's nothing I've heard from Calling All Stations that inspires me uh, in the least to continue down that path and hear the whole album. If you've been listening to this show for long enough, you know that I'm the world's biggest Genesis fan, basically. And I did not listen to this album until this morning. That's, that's, that, that tells you something. I've owned it twice, by the way. I bought it and not put it on. I bought it out of a sense of duty and obligation and also because I was forced to because it came with that boxed set. And so I had to get it whether I wanted it or not. Uh, and I've never listened to it. And I finally put it on today. And I heard Congo because that was on the greatest hit CD. Uh, I hadn't heard any of the other stuff. And I could <clears throat> I had this this is a, a very a phenomenon maybe you two will understand every time I'd get like two thirds of the way into the song I'd be doing something else I'd be reading something and I'd feel the need to just pause it or just like skip I, I said no no I, I, I don't want to hear this anymore um, and I think part of the reason for that is, is, is Wilson I feel so bad for this guy put in an impossible situation I mean how are you going to replace Phil Flippin Collins of all people all right, but not only that, but they chose a guy whose voice is so different from yeah, Phil's. Yeah. Like you know, Peter's and Phil's voice were very similar. They ended up growing very far apart, uh, and over time, as as Peter's voice aged and got deeper. Um, but it, in like that seventy four to seventy six era, they had actually a lot of similarities to the point where you sometimes couldn't tell who was singing what. Um, but Ray Wilson has got this very dark, deep, gritty voice. Uh, and it just is so wrong with these things. I kept on listening to the songs and just I'm trying to imagine Phil singing them. Sometimes I could make it work in my mind, oh. but it was still B-rate Genesis. It, it was it's or one C-rate. of those things. Where, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and I don't know. Like these guys were always very talented songwriters, but the, it, it kind of shows you what the three of them together brought. You know, even if Phil isn't writing, sometimes he's exercising quality control. He's saying, like, no, that's not good enough. Or, no, we're not going to do it that way. No, I can't sing it that way. And so you end up with a bunch of stuff that ultimately just ends up sounding very generic. It sounds like, you know, it could have been made by a, a local promising band from Dayton, Ohio. It doesn't sound like Genesis. And I, I'm, I'm really sorry to all those you know, five to ten huge fans of Calling All Stations out there who are going to be offended by this. But yeah, it's it's an album that uh, I, as the world's biggest fan, I couldn't even bring myself to listen to until <laughs> literally an hour before we were recording this show. I, I have almost exactly the same story. I didn't get my copy until Saturday, uh, and I listened to it for the first time this morning, and I also kind of skipped through after about two-thirds uh, every song. And, you know, what's amazing to think about with this is this album is 23 years yeah. old. Yeah, and here we are finally discussing it uh, in 2020, but it, it just clearly never had an impact, and yet they remastered it in 2007, right? So for the, the, the anniversary, they remastered it, which is uh, amazing that it had enough that the the company was willing to do that, and I suppose Genesis. They had they had the one more slot in that 1982 to 97. Isn't that box amazing? That, that had to be filled. Yeah. You know, and the only thing that I'm I'm really interested in, and I didn't know this until I'm looking at the booklet right now. Uh, Nick D. Virgilio, who's one of my favorite drummers, drummed on four of the tracks. Yeah. Uh, and he's from Spock's Beard and from Big Big Train. 
But mm-hmm. uh, I, I had no idea until right now that he played on this album. <laughs> so uh, now I want to go back and listen to those tracks. But well, he, he, he doesn't want you to know he played on this album. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's never really broadcasted. No. <laughs> so yeah. it's too bad we have to end with that. I mean, there's uh, there's so many great things to talk about with Genesis. Le- so. The rest of the bulk of their career, uh, you know, measures up, and it, it, there's no apologies necessary. You know, yeah. one of the funny things actually. This is actually a fitting way to end. We didn't mention their last official live album, which is The Way We mm. Walk, uh, which is the, the We Can't Dance tour. They threw in a couple of songs from the Invisible Touch tour that you know were too hard for Phil to sing uh, you know, in the modern era. But uh, there's this one little thing. on they, they, they divided up for some bizarre reason into like the Shorts album and then the right. Longs album. Right. Uh, but the Longs album has this wonderful old medley. Man, Genesis were so great at doing old medleys. And and this one begins, it's just like a bunch of their old, like, 70s prog greatest hits all starting together. It has Dance on a Volcano, and then it goes into The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, then Firth of Fifth, The Musical Box. And then it ends with this this wonderful I Know What I Like performance, which isn't just I Know What I Like, which Phil just kills he belts it out but then it just goes into all these other little bits and bops of other songs he starts singing like you know a little bit of that's all and <laughs> then a legal alien comes in and then for some reason your own special way is there and then finally it goes into follow you follow me you know and and then then tony actually starts changing up the chord sequence what you realize is how similar that follow mm-hmm. you and follow me and i know what i like are and then finally ends you know you know and you know <clears throat> that final refrain of the follow you follow me chorus back into yes 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 yes, i know well i know what i like (laughs) and that is that is to me always the sound of genesis saying goodbye like this is your show i'm glad that you loved it i'm glad that you liked it this is what we've done this is what we always did this is what we will always do best good night god bless oh that's great Genesis career, although as Jeff mentioned, maybe a tour in 2021. Things allow. We'll see. But it's point of the show where all of us give you the two albums from this era that you should own, the five songs that you must hear, many to choose from, from this fantastic era of music. Brad Berzer, 
Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American <laughs> Studies, Professor of History at Hillsdale College. Many other things I'll run down in just a moment. But Brad, you have the floor first for your two albums and your five songs. Oh my gosh, I should have thought of this before. <laughs> so um, I would say definitely my two albums would be Trick of the Tail and uh, Duke. Those uh, yeah, are just, I think, such fine albums. Why don't you come back to me on the songs? I want to think about that for just a bit, right. Scott, if you don't mind. But those two albums, definitely. You know, I, I have to admit, I don't often think of Genesis in terms of songs. I always think of them in terms of albums. So, but take, yeah. Take some time. Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, I'll, I'll give you mine. So uh, my two albums um, are Duke and Genesis. And I know, you know, Jeff's going to give you Trick of a Tale, too, so it won't be unrepresented here, but Duke and, and Genesis. And then among the songs, uh, going back to A Trick of the Tale for Squonk, uh, I think one that really helps define that, that era just after Gabriel left. Uh, from And then there were three, Down and Out Man. Go here, Down and Out. Uh, Turn It On Again from Duke. Uh, that's right in the center of that album, fifth or sixth track, I believe, and and just anchors it. It's a it's a it became a, a a good single, a hit single, and still is played on classic rock radio. But there are so many twists and turns and hooks in "Turn It On Again." <sighs> kind of do this on the fly. I could pick a couple things from Abacab, but really, it's the title track. I think. I mean, you've got to hear you've got to hear Abacab. You've got to hear you know in its six and a half minute glory, and not the uh, the edited version. Uh, and again, the synth tones from from Banks, uh, the wonderful vocals from from Collins, and that open gate drum technique, which is front and center on Abacab. That really is one of my favorite Genesis songs. And the last song, I could go like six different ways, uh, but from Invisible Touch, I, I think again the 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 unedited tonight 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 lyrically so heavy, musically is pretty adventurous for for that time. Of Genesis, it's a it's a great song. So uh, tonight, tonight, tonight would be my fifth song on that list. All right, Brad, have you collected your thoughts? Yeah, I have. And uh, so I would say, "Dance on a Volcano," uh, "Silver Rainbow," and I know that's the odd one of my list, but I just that song has meant so much to me, even though I didn't. (laughs) I don't think I got all of the meaning of it until (laughs) Jeff explained it. Uh, But I I love the synthesizer in that, and I love the kind of daring of the song. Abacab, uh, "Blood on the Rooftops," and "Entangled." Those would be my top five. Jeff, good list. I think my 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 two albums are going to be a trick of the tail, which I consider to be the second, very close to the first, but still I think technically the second greatest Genesis album ever, and then the third greatest Genesis album ever, Abacab, the first CD ever purchased back when they had long boxes. Remember long? Oh boxes? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I still have. I still have the Abacab wow. long box. I never got rid of it. That's that. That is a practical antique, my friends. <laughs> oh God, the five songs. This is basically impossible. I've I've talked about mm-hmm. so many uh, throughout the show that it you, you can understand the pain that I feel having to winnow it down. I guess I'll start with Madman Moon from Trick of the Tail. I just think it's beautiful, and it also kind of so illustrates uh, you know in this era before Steve Hackett departed. The way that he contributed so well to songs, even songs that he didn't personally write, just you know, by throwing in those touches that, that take a song from something that's merely pretty to something that is achingly beautiful. Mm. Uh, the second one I'll say is uh, Duchess uh, off of Duke, which I think is, again, I, I told you guys in advance, this is going to be in my top five. I didn't lie. Uh, this is just a magnificent one-hook wonder. And also the story of the band's career in miniature. Uh, third song will be No Reply at All 
from Abacab. There are so many I could pick. I could have picked Abacab. I could have picked my favorite alien abduction story <laughs> that would someday appear on the History Channel with the big guy at the hair saying, aliens. It was aliens. <laughs> I can finally admit that it was aliens. But no, I go with no reply at all uh, for the great integration of horns for the first and last time into a Genesis song, uh, but also that middle eight. Um, that was my three. Number four is going to be just a job to do off of Genesis, the, off the self-titled album. Uh, you know, I, I would never have thought that Phil Collins could play a convincing hitman, uh, but man, he somehow <laughs> pulls it off on a song written by Mike, mostly. Uh, my final one will be throwing it all away. Or, or not my final one. Uh, my my uh, One more will be throwing it all away. Uh, I think that the live version is the best version from the 1986 tour, but I still think that it's you know great in its studio version. And I just want to throw in one extra one um, uh, is uh, Duke's Travels. Duke's yeah. Act is purely Agreed. instrumental and I think kind of demonstrates what the strength of this band was purely as an instrumental force. There's a section at the end of this song, particularly when they performed it live on the Duke tour, where Collins is just, you know, he's drumming at the same time as he's singing. He's like, I am the one who has guided you this far. All you know and all you feel, the power that comes out of him and out of the ensemble, the, the keyboards, the guitars, the drums, the double drum approach, you know, as Phil finally screams, take what's yours and be damned. He just you know basically you know, leaves it all behind. Uh, that's Genesis. That's Genesis at their absolute best. You can find it on the archives box set, or you know you can find a clip of it here. Beats look at the career of Genesis Part 2, this Phil Collins, Henry Wilson, era 
of the band. <laughs> our thanks to our guests, Brad Berzer, Russell Amos Kirk, Chair at American Studies and Professor of History at Hillsdale College, teaching here since 1999, co-founder of the imaginative conservative Spirit of Cecilia websites. You can also find him on Twitter at Bradley Berzer. Brad, thanks so much for joining us once again Thank you here guys. on Political Thank you, guys. It was Beats. great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Jeff, I don't know what we do. We're done now, right? We've done Genesis, so that, that's it. We've that's done, it. End we've of done the your show. favorite band, so we can close up shop. Uh, we have more things in the works. Uh, find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. My name is Scott Bertram. I'm on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Subscribe to our feed. New episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Tune in. Go right to nationalreview.com. Click on podcast. You'll find us there. Follow us on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.